When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good Easter Sunday morning. Beautiful morning. Uh, a little bit warm, but we are getting down toward the end of April. So uh, you got to expect that summer's going to get here sooner or later. But it looks like it's going to be a beautiful couple of days coming up. Very cool pleasant mornings and not overly hot in the afternoon there's actually a little bit of rain in the forecast i think that's the biggest joke out there but it sure would be nice if it happens but regardless rain or no rain there's a lot of things to get done there are so many different things you need to be working on in the vegetable garden the flower garden perhaps your house plants need a little bit of attention lots of things to talk about this morning and uh, do have a couple of open lines ron's going to be up first but if you would like to get in early I, you can certainly do so it uh let's see it looks like it's going to be yeah we've got ron and may are the only two uh that's yeah the only two i've got waiting so we've got two open lines grab one of them if you like you know the number 210-599-5555 so much to talk about on this holiest of all days in the christian world but uh most important is what is on your mind so let's just get started with phone calls chris and ron is up first good morning ron yeah good morning bob uh good morning sir uh, I do plan to go to a service here in a little bit. Uh, I wanted to weigh in on the vinegar, the uh, apple cider vinegar thing that you yes, sir. and yep. uh, the dirt doctor were talking about. You can buy capsules that have apple cider vinegar in them. I don't know exactly how it's done, but I have a bottle that are, uh, each one's 1,200 milligrams, and oh, it says okay. to take one, one to two, no, take two, one to two times a day. Okay. And I just take one a day. I just uh-huh. take one a day. But anyway, I don't think a lot of people know that you can buy it actually in a bottle, <laughs> uh, in, a ca- in a capsule form. In a capsule. Form. I, I certainly yeah. didn't know that. Seems to me like it'd take a lot of capsules to equal the tablespoon of vinegar, but maybe they have... Uh, they have, you know, concentrated it and refined it. Uh, gel caps are certainly tasteless, and uh, for anybody who objects to the taste to it, that's a wonderful thing to know. I thank you for sharing that well, with that, us. Uh, yeah, I, I was one of those people. <laughs> I was one of those people. Uh, and then I have an uh, interesting story, I think. I have uh, this ranch out in Real County. I have a garden there. Mm-hmm. And I had four four tomato plants planted. They were about two feet tall when I left the last time. I don't live there. Uh-huh. Next time I came back, it looked like I hadn't even planted them. They were gone. Wow. And in in the garden, and I have a high fence so the deer can't get in it. I put a chicken wire around it so the rabbits can't get in there. But a raccoon climbed over it, and I found the raccoon inside dead. <laughs> I guess he ate so much of this these tomato plants that it was either toxic or, or something. But I've never had that happen. I've had this garden for over 20 years. And this raccoon just ate them down to the ground where I couldn't, I wouldn't eat my stem sticking up out of the ground. Wow. Well, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't shed any tears over the loss of the raccoon, but I might over the tomato plants. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well had, had, I had, yeah, I had to start over with smaller plants. Right. 
Right. Well, yeah. the tomatoes are in the nightshade family, and they are, it's interesting, the foliage is toxic. You would have to eat a lot of it, but I guess Mr. Raccoon or Ms. Raccoon, whichever one, ate a lot of it. And, of course, we, we measure toxicity by the number of milligrams of, of toxin per kilogram of body weight. So an animal like a raccoon that probably weighs 10 or 12 pounds, maybe 15 if it's a really big one, certainly would not take as much to make it sick or kill it as it would a, you know, 160 pound human. But, uh, that's, I, I, again, that's something I've, I've not heard of happening, but it's, I'm not totally surprised if it was foolish enough to consume four, Growing and healthy and um, probably just full of the toxins that are in the nightshades of all sorts. But uh, I guess the the good thing is he'll only do it once. He won't do it again. Yeah. But sorry, you have to start over, and I hope you have luck finding plants. Uh, we've actually, you know, the, the growers were just late. We probably have more tomatoes now than we had back when it was originally time to get them planted. So I hope your nursery that you deal with uh uh, wherever here in Rayal County has, uh, you know, has good plants for you to, uh, plant. I would point out that planting this late, be sure that you've planted at least some cherries because you're going to have a shortened season for big fruited tomatoes because, of course, they stop setting fruit when the nights get hot while the cherry types, uh, keep on producing regardless of temperature. So, considering now that it's going to take a little time for your big fruited ones to get up to producing size hopefully hopefully we're not going to launch into just a super hot summer that shuts off their fruit set early but uh, i want you to get plenty of good ripe tomatoes so you're getting good vitamin c and all the other good things along with your apple cider vinegar so so be sure whatever you plant that you do include some cherries in the mix well, I do. I do. Uh, uh, matter of fact, I, I live in San Antonio, so I, I shopped at your nursery to buy the tomato plants. Oh, well, and I've that. been looking. I've been looking for Sun Gold as a cherry tomato, but I just haven't found them yet. They were hard to find. We got a handful early. Uh, we've got more coming, and you know how far I had to go to find them: Denver, Colorado. Uh, we've got a, a grower up there, and they're not coming to Texas as often as they once did, uh, but they promised they would be here this week, and um, at least when I ordered them, they had quite a few sun golds, and I trust they put them aside for me because I ordered them about two weeks ago. But uh, you might give a call Wednesday or Thursday, like I said. In fact, call every day. I, I don't know when they will arrive, and uh, we'll certainly set them aside for you until you have the opportunity to get by. But these are the funds, first sun goals that i have seen in quite some time now you might try fanix you might try rainbow there may be other people that uh but we all we all use a lot of the same suppliers and uh um they just haven't been out there but there will be some and like i say call and we will uh when they come in we'll set aside whatever you want but uh i've i've felt very blessed my sun goals are blooming and i'm going to keep an eye out for raccoons now <laughs> but hopefully <laughs> well, hopefully I, we'll I have i know we've got sweet 100s uh and, and we are closed today for anybody interested uh, for Easter Sunday. I'm, I'm sitting here looking out at a beautiful empty nursery that's so, so peaceful this morning. But uh, <laughs> should have some sun goals for you a little later in the week. Okay, well, Phoenix was out of them, too. Uh, okay. Yeah, I've had, I've had animals, of course, eat the ripe tomatoes. That's, that's mm-hmm. the biggest problem. But I've never had one just eat the plant literally to the ground where it didn't even look like I planted it. So I, wow. I think you're right. I think, I think this coon, raccoon ate so much of it, it killed him. 
is what yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, like I say, they are a member of the nightshade family, which means they, in their foliage, they do have uh, plenty of toxin. And there, there's some plants out there. Uh, among them, tapioca, cassava is one. Is just the plant is just highly, highly, highly toxic. But the roots they make tapioca pudding out of, and uh, totally harmless to most things. So it's not unheard of, and I'm sure it's Mother Nature's defense. Uh, Mother Nature wants creatures to eat the fruit and spread the seed around but obviously would like for the plant to live long enough to produce plenty of fruit. So I guess in yeah. that regard, the tomato is a highly evolved plant. But uh, I'm sorry you had to find out the hard way. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry it wasn't two plants were enough to kill them, so at least you had something left over. But uh, I, you've shared some valuable information for me this morning, and I really do appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you, Bob. I enjoy your, your program. Thank you. Well, I appreciate the call, and uh, you have a blessed Easter. We'll talk again. Thanks, Ron. Uh, let me look and see here. Uh, yeah, we can take one more call before we go to a break. Uh, it's May's turn. Good morning, May. Good morning. Good morning. I've got, I've got a question about burr oak. I've uh-huh. got two trees in my yard, and some of the limbs are hanging, starting to hang down pretty far. And mm-hmm. I said something to my sons about cutting them off, and they said, no, it wasn't the time. And I said, well, I don't think they get oak wilt. But they said, yeah, but the the wood burrs would get into them. So I was wondering when would be the best time to... As soon as Dr. Kirby and I go off the air this afternoon, wood borers are are not going to get into the little wounds on there, and you are absolutely right. They are not susceptible to oak wilt. Let me ask you this. How how big in diameter are the trunks on these trees? How thick through are the trunks? Oh, maybe 10 inches. Oh, yeah. Go ahead and trim those and, and don't even hesitate. If there are limbs that you want to take all the way back, be sure that you leave that little ring of cells called the branch collar right there against the trunk. Don't cut them totally flush with the trunk. But uh, if you just want to trim off some of the outer portion that's hanging down and getting in the way, uh, you do that at will. But, uh, no, there you are running no danger whatsoever of wood borers getting in, but just because you prune this well, time of I year. I didn't think we ever had any problem with it, but I thought, well, well Mother knows best in maybe, this case. Maybe, maybe they were using that as an excuse. You think? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hadn't thought of that, but uh, and it's not Mother's Day. It's Easter, so uh, we've got another month to wait before you really can expect lots of favors from them, but uh, it doesn't sound like a very big job to me. So, yeah, I get it done at your earliest convenience. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You have a good Easter. You do the same, mate. Thank you. All right, now let's take a quick break, and then we'll get back to phone calls. I get to talk about another really good guy out there, and uh, that's Sam Sitterly and his business, Green Grow Organics. You know, to stay in business for 30 years, and Sam's been in business for over 30 years, you've got to have several things. You've got to really enjoy what you're doing, and you have to be taking good care of your customers. And Sam's business just continues to grow and grow and grow. I guess I'd have to describe him... Oh, sort of as a consultant who also does, you know, some of the work. Now, he doesn't have big crews. He doesn't have people that are going to mow your grass and trim your trees. But uh, he does 
things like compost tea application, fertilization, taking care of uh, uh, problems that may crop up in your landscape. And he's happy just to show you and explain to you what you need to do to keep your yard looking absolutely beautiful, your entire landscape. Keep it in the peak of health. It's what he's been doing for 30 years and always doing it totally organically. You can check out his website. It's Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. Check it out. Look at all the beautiful landscapes that he has helped with. Read all the wonderful reviews. We have customers in here practically every day singing his praises. One lady calls him St. Sam because she says he's done so much to help her landscape out. If you think his program would be good for you, call and set up a consultation. Be sure you understand any charges up front. And uh, perhaps you will decide to join the ranks of many people who really have beautiful landscapes thanks to the consultation, their work, and the work of Sam Sitterly and Green Grow or Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Richard and Kit and Jimmy and JT. Richard is up first. Good morning. Hello, Bob. How are you doing? Off to a good start. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. Question. Uh, we have a pet rabbit who lives outside in the hutch, and the uh-huh. bedding is comprised of what I would... Uh, compared to shredded grocery paper bags. Okay. Old-fashioned paper bags. Mm-hmm. So what I've been doing is dumping it in, our, in my open bin compost, and it just seems like I have a non-completed product because I keep adding to it. But sure. I also have a contraption called an EnviroCycle Tumbler, uh-huh. and I was wondering if I put it in there, what can I mix it with and add to maybe have that compost a little faster? Well, you know, in speeding up the process, you really lower the quality. So I'm not going to encourage you too strongly to do that. You can speed up the breakdown by adding molasses, by adding uh, just about anything sugary, uh, by keeping it, you know, just slightly moist. But here, here's the deal. The best compost produced is a combination of bacterially produced and fungally produced compost. And when you have a static pile, which is basically what your, your bin that you've just been dumping things in is, you get a lot of uh, fungi as well as a lot of bacteria. When you put it in a tumbler and you're spinning it round and round and round, Every time you spin it, you're busting up the longer filaments of some of your very valuable fungi, so you end up with a compost that's 100% bacterially produced. Now, there's no such thing as bad compost, but if you're looking for the best of the best, then your old way of doing it is is a much better way of doing it. I'll tell you what I do in my garden. I have two compost piles, and, well, I have two compost areas, so to speak, and these are just pieces of fence wire that are, you know, coiled into a circle six feet across. And I will work at filling one, and then as it approaches getting full, I will move over and start filling the second one. By the time the second one is full, the first one is all ready to empty out and go. It's already turned into finished compost. So then I'll start refilling it while I let the second one just sit and cook, if you want to use that term. And that way, I'm I'm not doing what you're doing, and that is just always having, you know, new material, fresh material on the top, 
and old material down on the bottom. I mean, that's the way Mother Nature does it. If you go down and go out and dig down through the forest floor, you're going to find leaves and twigs on the surface, but then you get a few inches down and you've got nice finished compost, so to speak. So uh, you you do whatever suits your needs best. But if you want to speed up the breakdown of your paper products, uh, throw some of the rabbit pellets in there, some of their droppings, uh, add a little bit of molasses, dry molasses is easy. If you want to spray some liquid molasses, you know, in there, you can certainly do that. And you will definitely speed the process up. But the compost you're getting will not be as diverse in microbial life, I guess is the best way to put it. And uh, that's the main thing we get out of compost are the beneficial microbes. We don't get enough nitrogen and things to make a whole lot of difference. We do get a lot of lot of raw elements that uh, you're going to get either way. Uh, but the point is, you know, if you want good compost, uh, use your tumbler. If you want great compost, do what you've been doing, which is what we call static pile composting. Okay, well, you give me a project then, because uh, my, my current static pile is a corrugated a PVC bin with holes in it, and I took a uh-huh. six-inch six-inch PVC pipe, which I drilled a whole bunch of holes through that, and that's my center point. And okay. I bought a contraption years ago called a compost crank. It's like <laughs> an old-fashioned drill and a big old corkscrew, so I use uh-huh. that. So while I'm building my second pile, what can I add to that one other than molasses to speed it up? Same what thing. about these aftermarket compost starters you see here? Are they worth anything? Uh, you know, you could do exactly the same thing with a cup or two of finished compost. If you want to buy some of those and spend some money, you certainly can. But I think you'd be better served. Go down to a good nursery and buy a good bag of compost. And a couple of bags of finished compost are going to have every, I mean, a couple of cups of finished compost are going to have everything in it that that product you're going to pay 15 bucks for does. If I was going to add anything to it, I might uh, I might use one of the Medina products like uh, their Soil Activator or the Medina Plus or even uh, any of their fertilizers. A new liquid fish would be great, but uh, I think Medina Plus probably has, you know, and and you could use that in your static pile as well as in your tumbler. That's another thing. Or Garrett juice, you know, what Howard Garrett uh, recommends putting together. And you can buy it as a finished product, or you can simply go to his DirtDoctor.com website and see how to make your own. But that's also going to be very good to use in, in both places. All right, Bob, thank you much. And you are so welcome, and keep up the good work. And uh, rabbit pellets, you know, I'm sure you feed your bunnies uh, mainly alfalfa or alfalfa pellets. And there is really, of the of the manures that you can make use of in the garden and elsewhere, I don't think you can top rabbit manure. Chicken or poultry manure has a little bit more in it, but it's also hot enough, so to speak, that it has to be aged before you can really use it. Cow manure has been takes so much time going through the cow it has very little nutrient value horse manure may be contaminated with weed seeds and of course anything eating hay you run the risk of herbicide contamination but uh good old rabbit pellets they're just there's just nothing better as far as building good compost than uh, you're going to get from your bunnies so uh in addition to the pleasure they give you they're going to help out your garden too all right, uh, hoping that got Richard's questions taken care of. Kit is up next. Good morning, Kit. Good morning, Bob, and happy Easter. And to you as well. Good morning. So it's funny you started talking about chicken compost because that's one of the topics I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> All so right, sir, very good. My bedding in my chicken coop is hay that I just picked up loose hay from the feed store. And, of course, the chicken's generate a whole bunch of poop. Sure. My question to you is, 
can I take that? I'm, I'm worried about the, what is it? Um, Pickleram. Whatever those, Pickleram, yeah. yeah. I'm yep. worried about that in the hay. Um, will that pass through the chickens like it does horses and cows? Or yep. is that chicken poop? Yeah, okay, so I should not put the chicken coop in the compost well, that I want to put on the garden. It, what, what I would do, the chances that you're going to have a problem are are pretty remote. Uh, in other words, uh, per volume, um, you know, the, the hay probably makes up a relatively small portion of what you are producing in the way of a compostable material. Uh, the whole problem with picloram and these other uh, sulfonated urea herbicides is that they don't go away. Nothing in nature yep. breaks them down. The only thing that gets rid of them is dilution. So I, I, I would certainly be careful with using it. I would uh, get in the habit habit of doing, you know, the very simple Pickleram test, which doesn't cost you a penny. You simply get a five-gallon bucket or so, fill it halfway, two-thirds of the way full, either with the hay or with uh, your your finished product, so to speak, and fill about half, two-thirds full with that, uh, fill the bucket maybe half full of water, let it soak for a couple of days, and then take that liquid and go pour it over a broadleaf weed, not a grass, because that's the whole principle behind these herbicides. They don't kill the grass, but they kill everything else. But I imagine you can find a dandelion or some henbit or some kind, some clover, some oxalis, some kind of broadleaf weed. Go and pour the liquid over that and watch the weed for 48 hours. If the weed continues to grow and thrive, you'll know that you're herbicide-free. If the weed starts getting brown edges or starts to fold up and die, you'll know that uh, you got some contaminated stuff that needs to go out in the pasture or somewhere. Yeah, and I've done that with the hay before, and I've had that problem, so that's why I haven't been putting the chicken coop in the yeah or the chicken droppings into the compost bin. So, well, okay. it's 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 always a problem, but you're very wise to consider it. You might talk to your hay source and tell them your concerns and ask them to, you know, look for some hay that hasn't been sprayed. Because I can promise you, you're you're probably the only one that is cognizant of what the problems can be. But uh, you'd be doing everybody a favor if you could talk your supplier <laughs> into getting uh, some non-sprayed hay, even if you had to pay a little bit more for it. Yep. Yep. Um, and then two other, one other compost-related questions. So I've got all my, uh, well, not all of them, but at least as of two weeks ago, all of my oak leaves um, collected and put into, I don't know, it's probably about a 30-foot run, about four feet high and about six or eight feet wide. <laughs> they generated um, lots of leaves this year, yeah. yes, sir. <laughs> yes, they did. Um, and then, of course, I've got some grass clippings and stuff in there, too. Last week, I thought I heard you say you could put dry molasses on that, and it would help. Uh, absolutely a little bit more absolutely. so do i just like sprinkle it on the top or do i have to mix it in or what is the best way to do that uh, With the dry molasses? It, it you know the fastest way is to blend it in but mother nature doesn't stir up the forest floor very often except for what the armadillos do so uh, it's going to you know help and it's going to break down regardless of what you do if i was going to make one suggestion that i think will help with the breakdown more than anything else and this is sort of after the fact, but I love running a mower through those leaves a couple of times to chop them up because the more surface area you create on the leaf, 
uh, to break down, the faster it's going to break down. And just a pile of oak leaves doesn't break down nearly as quickly as a pile of shredded oak leaves. So I don't know how practical that is in your situation, but if you have any way to shred them up a bit, to mulch them up, that's going to speed up the breakdown a great deal. I actually used a lawnmower to pick them up. So, very, very um, good. Very was, good. <laughs> so. The other, the only other thing I'd tell you, because it is so dry, is that things will not break down without some moisture. So maybe once a week or so, take the hose oh, out okay. there and wet that wet that pile down. Sounds like you're going to have a lot of good compost, all that's probably going to shrink 80% mm-hmm. as it breaks yep. down. But uh, uh, you've got to maintain some moisture in that pile if you want it to break down at any reasonable rate of speed. All right, cool. And then one more question before you have to get to a commercial break. Around the base of my fruit trees, I'm getting a lot of grass to come up. I've got mulch around, uh-huh. you know, about two feet, three feet out from the from the center. But right there around the base, I'm getting a lot of grass. Can I use that orange oil and soap spray? Oh, absolutely. That yeah, orange oil and vinegar. Yeah, orange oil yeah, and vinegar. Orange and vinegar. Yeah, and um, yeah, it uh, it will not harm your trees at all. Uh, if they're beyond, you know, what we call the green bark or the smooth bark stage, you once the bark starts getting rough, it will have no impact at all on the trees. So, what I do when I'm doing that around my own plants i just uh, have a piece of cardboard in one hand and my sprayer in the other and i can just put the cardboard up against whatever i don't want to spray because the orange oil vinegar mix is not transferred through the soil in any way it's only only goes through the leaves so i'm sure you can come up with a lightweight contraption or some sort you can just hold up against three while you spray all the grasses around the base and it should work perfectly all right sounds great sounds like i got a new projects this week <laughs> I somehow suspect that you are never without projects, just like I am. You're kids. a smart so, man, Bob. You, you just get out and enjoy it. And uh, oh, old Malcolm Beck used to say, you know, if you enjoy what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And fortunately, that's that's what gardening is to me, although I sure spend a lot of time uh, playing uh, <laughs> and go, mm-hmm. go home tired and sweaty, but it's a good thing. So have a wonderful My day, and I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Yep, thank you, Bob. You have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. And I do need to get a break in here. Jimmy and JT and Regina will be my next three callers, but I get to talk to you about the Cedar Eater of Texas. And uh, once again, I just I, I talk about all the benefits to your land that the Cedar Eater provides when uh, they take that cedar and shred it down to a very, very nice mulch, which kills the cedar effectively, and then leaves a really good mulch behind for you and doesn't tear up the soil like a skid steer or a bulldozer would do. But I have to focus a bit on the danger of cedar right now because it is dry, it is highly, highly flammable, and you don't have to look far to see damage, uh, you know, fire damage. Fortunately, we haven't had the problem that they had in New Mexico with, you know, homes and lives lost. But let me tell you, the fire at Camp Bullis, the fire over around Medina Lake, the many smaller fires we've been having, they are made much worse when you have dry cedar on your property. And it's one more thing that the Cedar Eater can take care of almost instantly. Cedar Eater in, can cover acres and acres in a single day, taking that cedar down, turning it into a nice mulch. It doesn't mean it doesn't burn, but it won't burn with 30-foot high flames. One more reason that your land would benefit greatly if you'd simply call the Cedar Eater. 210-745-2743. That's 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. 
All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Uh, Jimmy's up first, and it'll be JT. Good morning, Jimmy. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Off to a good start. Beautiful day out there. Yes, yes. I'm coming back from Rockport, and it's uh, I'm just south of town, just north of Lotus, a little drizzle, just very, very light. I wish oh, it was man. a little heavier. <laughs> I, I hope you pull in your driveway and it turns into a downpour. I hear you. Hey, I have a place down in Rockport, and I have a floor tamp uh, grass and a good stand of grass, and I've, I'm having issues with dollar wheat, and it's really gotten, just since the hurricane, I guess, it's a okay. lot worse, and I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of it. How often are you? Done. How often are you watering your floor, Tam? Uh, not often enough. Um, well, so generally speaking, yeah. Generally speaking, all you need to do to get rid of dollar weed is just cut back on the frequency of watering. You want to be watering very, very thoroughly when you do water. But uh-huh. um, uh, dollar weed is uh, his botanical name is hydrocotyl, which means water leaf, which tells you uh-huh. it, it it loves moisture. So what I would right. what I would try to do, well, number one, fertilize your floratam because it will choke out everything. But to reduce dollar weed, simply water more thoroughly when you water, but not as often. And dollar weed yeah. will normally just dry up and go away. Well, that's what I would. I was hoping, but I don't water because I live in San Antonio. It's just a weekend mm-hmm. home, and so I don't. I haven't watered, and I don't know when. It just depends on the rain, whatever the rains we have. So, uh, so fertilize it with what the. Uh, no, Medina. Oh, Medina's yeah. growing green, or uh, green. Maestro okay. grows. Maestro grow makes one. Uh, uh, they call Texas tea. That's very good. Nature's Creation makes one. They call Premium Lawn Food. Those are all good organic fertilizers that do not have to be watered in. And it may just be that uh, may just be that your floor tam's a little weak, and that's why you're seeing more of the more of the dollar weed. Yeah. But uh, uh, if you could give it some good nutrition two three times a year. That would make a lot of difference. And like I say, it, if you don't get around to watering it in, it will simply get watered with the next rain. But, uh, okay. uh, yeah, dollar weed's not worth worrying about. It's it's not anything that's going to cause you severe problems. But uh, when you okay. are able to water, just just try to do it thoroughly when you can. And uh, uh, it's, it's the worst thing you can do is just water lightly, frequently. And uh, it sounds like you don't get down there often enough, sadly, <laughs> to water yeah, frequently. Yeah. But, well, during uh, the summer we do, but uh, yeah. during the off season it's kind of hit and miss. So, well, during summer, summer's right around the corner. So hopefully you'll be down there a good deal and just work on that regimen. Uh, fertilize it as soon as you can. I mean, there's you, yeah, you can use I, these products 365 days a year, but uh, okay. try to get on a schedule where you know every 10 days or so you can give it just a real thorough drink and then let it dry out between times and by the end of the summer when you have to leave it behind you should have an absolutely gorgeous yard well i appreciate it that's that's okay well that's what i'll do then i appreciate it have a wonderful day you do the same sir always good to hear from you and appreciate it jimmy thank you jt is up next good morning jt hey good morning bob happy easter and to you as well sir I may need some help trying to resurrect a couple of plants that I rescued from a... <laughs> well, I guess Easter's a good day to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm hoping so. Uh, the two, actually, about two containers or five-gallon containers with Sotol in them. Uh-huh. One uh, looks pretty good, but it looks like it might be planted. I don't know nothing about these things. I got interested in them because my daughter and her boyfriend were fell in love with them out in West Texas. And sure. We've got some of them growing wild in one of the ranches, but I always thought it was just kind of a nuisance. I didn't pay much attention to them. 
Uh-huh. Anyway, I got these, and you know, very interested in just having them to see what they can do with them. Um, sure. Anyway, one uh, should that should that little crown, I'm not even sure what you call it, little trunk stump, whatever it is down in there. Should that be exposed at the surface? Absolutely, absolutely. If you're going to plant sotol, uh, you you would want to plant it high and certainly not cover that. Uh, they Beyond that, sotol just doesn't get insects or diseases to speak of. It does like some water, and if you're transplanting it, uh, you probably need to water it maybe once a week or so until it gets well established. After that, it's going to take care of itself. And uh, th- There are two different forms of sotol. The proper name is Dazzlerian, Dazzlerian sotol, and uh, one of them, it, it makes a fairly compact plant. Of course, spines all up and down the leaves, and it makes a bloom spot that'll stand eight to ten feet tall there's a second one that has a little bit smoother leaf and a bloom spike that doesn't get over about three feet my years in the wildlife management area in west texas we used to call that desolary not so tall but it's uh, <laughs> both of them are good plants but they they will you want to be sure that you don't plant them too deeply you want to be sure that you give them some water and when you water them water them thoroughly it doesn't rain off in the desert but when it does it's usually a downpour but i'd be watering them weekly until you see some new growth coming out on them and then at that point you can just basically start ignoring them well, these are going to have to be in a container at least for a okay. while. So. Well, in in that case, don't ever let them get bone dry. When you feel that that soil is dry a couple of inches deep, give it another thorough watering. How often that is will depend on weather and depend on how big the container is. But uh, they're tough, hardy plants. They can look pretty bad and still come out beautifully. You'll know you've gotten them over. Were, were, they, were they grown and purchased, or were these some that are, were dug somewhere and given to you? Uh, I bought them. I don't. I don't really know. One looks like it was repotted. It's in a heavier pot. They're about the same yep. size, but one is the one. Just the leaves coming up out of the soil. That's why I thought okay. it might be too deep. Well, yeah, yeah I, I would get the soil washed away from that one. If you have to dump it out of the pot, put some soil in the bottom of the pot, and replant it so that you've raised it up to where it's not buried like that, and it'll do much better. Yeah, that one looks pretty good. The other one's actually three plants in one five-gallon container. Uh-huh. Um, can those I wouldn't be try. No, I wouldn't try to separate them. It may actually be one plant that's branched below ground level, but you'd you'd tear up the roots too badly trying to separate them out. You need to let that one grow as a clump. If you want to start more, you can uh, you can actually collect some of the seed off of them. They they germinate and grow fairly easily, and depending on the care you give them, they can grow fairly quickly. Hmm. Well, these the one with the three. It has a little trunk sticking up out of the soil about three yeah. inches or so. Yeah, and that's normal. That's what you want to see. Now, I'll tell you that periodically they simply, the older portion of the plant just gives up. They don't live forever. But as if that one that's sticking way up, if it starts looking bad, I wouldn't worry because it's probably going to produce more than one small trunk coming out at the base. And they just kind of grow as a big clump. Okay, well... Yeah, that one that was it was completely dried out. It was felt like it was just made out of paper and picked it up. So I trimmed it well. out. I found the secret to trimming those things. Got my fencing gloves and my welder's leather sleeves. <laughs> and some good eye protection too. 
Uh, yeah, I have safety glasses and a sharp little printer get in there and cut out all the dead stuff. So. Well, as I said, I, I spent parts of three summers when I was in graduate school in, in a wildlife management area out there. And we described uh, the desert as saying everything out here either sticks you, stings you, or bites you. And that's one of the plants <laughs> that will definitely stick you if it gets a chance. Yeah. Not as bad as the agaves, but uh, you can certainly uh, do a little damage to your flesh on those things. So, But they are they are an interesting plant. And if you're wanting to create a real Zurich-looking landscape there's nothing all wrong with them they they don't have any negative qualities that i'm aware of there i don't think they're the prettiest things in the world but uh people probably say the same thing about me well i don't know if they're ever going to get enough together to try to make any so tall drink out of them but that that was why they were interested in them you know i'll tell you one interesting thing that the uh the native americans used those leaves tough as they are they wove them into baskets and things like that and uh our friend dr kirby who will be the veterinarian who will be on with me a little bit later this morning, or I'll be on with him. It's his show. But uh, he has a good-sized ranch in uh, West Texas uh, with some caves along, uh, I don't know whether it's the Pecos or the Rio Grande, but he did a little uh, excavating at the back of one of the caves, found some of the Sotol basket material, had it carbon dated over 2,500 years. So Sotols have been around a long time, and they were an interesting and important part of Native American culture. So they're a pretty tough plant. Well, they are tough. All the cat thinks they're dental floss or something. I don't know. She's been chewing on the leaves. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me totally at all. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thank You're you. sure welcome, JT. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> All right. Well, golly, had to get to be 848. Uh, Regina and Sherry, let me get a quick break in here, and then it'll be your turn. I get to talk about Fanix Nursery and Landscape, and they are closed today. Fanix is closed for Easter Sunday, as are most uh, small independent businesses, including us at Shades of Green. But Fanix, you might just want to go see them tomorrow because they've got so much color over there. The roses are in full bloom. You've got lots and lots of perennials. They've got lots of your spring annuals over there. Still pretty good supply of tomato plants and uh, there's just so many things you always find when you go to Phoenix because with 10 acres of nursery they have room for a lot of different plants now who knows you might be uh, you might be cooking for Easter on your Traeger pellet grill that you got from Phoenix a few weeks ago if maybe you're visiting friends and they've got a beautiful Traeger grill well it might have come from Phoenix so you might want to go check that out and if you're looking for some great equipment to use outdoors you need to check out the ego line the uh, lithium-ion battery powered equipment is quiet enough that you could be out there working on easter sunday morning without uh, without disturbing the neighbors even the leaf blowers and line trimmers and things like that are just unbelievably quiet you know fanix is more than just a nursery but let me tell you what they have all the organic gardening supplies you're looking for and most importantly they have the knowledge to help you with whatever you're looking to do fanix nursery and garden center closed today for Easter. Normally open seven days a week to serve you over on Home Green Road where they've been for about 85 years now. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. My next three callers are Regina, Sherry, and Mary. Regina's up first. Good morning. Good morning. Blessed day to you. Yeah, um, to you as I, well. I have I had called about uh, a Joey avocado that I was hoping was going to uh, recover. You said to mm-hmm. give it till Father's Day? That's what I, I would understand. suggest, the early June, uh-huh. Okay, okay. It, it's, it's 
may it's looking like a stick but i think there's a tiny tiny buds on it very good um very good i'm not sure if that's wishful thinking my question actually had to do with um a, a couple of setting up a, a new bed and trying to decide if these three things might go together um I, I have an uh, Abelia grandiflora, and then I also have these nice um, sweet almond shrubs. Uh-huh. Um, so I and live out here in West Bear County, where it's limestone, and basically um, you, you you have to make sure you've got enough soil. Sure, I also sure. have a primrose primrose jasmine. So uh-huh. I'm wondering if I could put these together in a sort of bermed area or if I and the other part of it is how much sun exposure I also have a lot of dappled um, oaks and elms well all three of those are plants that love sun the more sun the better all three of them are fairly similar in their watering needs so what works for one should work for the other so uh, the only caution i will give you is that the primrose jasmine will attempt to take over the area it is it's one of those plants that if they say if you give it an inch it'll take a yard your yard uh, the way it grows it'll put out those long graceful branches have yellow flowers in the spring and then everywhere those branches touch the surface of the ground they take root start a new plant and start shooting it all out in all directions from there so they are one of the uh one of the plants that that will if you're not careful to keep them trimmed back they will pretty soon just dominate the area and choke out the abelia and the sweet almond verbena so uh they're they're fine together as far as having their needs but give give your primrose jasmine room to grow and do your part with the pruning shears from being sure it doesn't overdo the growing so the prolific part of them is is that that the stem that that it's not a rise. I mean, it's not from their root system. It's not no, from seed or anything. No, else. none of none of those three uh, will sprout from the roots. They all okay. uh, well, sweet almond verbena is going to be pretty upright. It wants to be a, a tall shrub. A bee grandiflora, if it's the old standard one, uh, I've got some around my home that were probably planted a hundred years ago, and they still come up mm-hmm. and bloom. And the hummingbirds still love them. But they're going to be an upright growing shrub, six or eight feet tall. There are many newer abelias that stay lower, but the old grand of flora can get pretty big and uh, then of course primrose jasmine it will grow as tall as whatever it can lean up against if it were sitting out in the you know plain middle of the yard it wouldn't grow more than about three to four feet tall but i've seen it leaning up a 10-foot fence where it was uh, against a 10-foot fence where it, it was 12 feet tall now so all th- all three of those plants take the same growing conditions but uh the the one that's really going to want to spread and take over is going to be the primrose jasmine it's a primrose Okay. Um, okay. Uh, to that, could I add an anacacho? And this one is the 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 native uh, anacacho yeah. orchid. Yeah, the the anacacho is is a shrubby one, not really a tree, but yeah. uh, wonderful mm-hmm. plant. Uh, white flowers, uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, again, okay. it's going to have something of the same growth habit as the abelia. It's going to be pretty much upright, and it will do fine in the sun, or it's one that actually could take a little partial shade, but the more sun it gets, the better it will bloom. So if this is a big enough bed, I have no problem with putting it in there as well. Okay, so I there is a section that uh, the most sunny spot's going to face the north, and mm-hmm. Uh, be the most exposed to the blast of west 
setting sun. Well, put the abelia Those, there. The abelia's the one okay. that wants the absolutely has to have the full sun. Second in line okay. would be the sweet almond verbena, and then mm-hmm. somewhere down the list would be the primrose jasmine and the anacacho. Uh, the more sun okay. the primrose jasmine gets, the better it will bloom, but it will certainly grow fine in the shade as well. Okay. Oh, okay. I I do appreciate your wisdom, always your information. Thank you well, so much. I don't, don't know about wisdom; it's experience, wisdom. and I've made every mistake you can make. So yeah. anyway, you get out and have a good Easter, and uh, you, as you know, call anytime I can help you. We're up just uh, less than a minute or about a minute before news time. So Sherry, hang on. Uh, you and Mary will be up immediately after the news break. Uh, remind everybody, it's uh, in the vegetable garden. I think it's warm enough now to plant just about everything except the okra i'm going to wait another couple of weeks before i plant okra but i think you're fine on your eggplant now and your peppers the hot peppers as well as the mild peppers and certainly your tomatoes if you're late in planting your tomatoes like i say always be sure that you plant some cherries because they're going to produce all summer long who knows what the weather's going to be this summer but if it turns off really hot your larger fruited tomatoes are going to stop uh, producing fruit a little bit earlier so want to be sure you continue to get good fresh tomatoes so uh plant plant some cherry tomatoes along with it i want to remind you too if you're looking to save some money to get a credit from cp PS Energy. They have that green shade or green, they change the name on it every year, but basically it's a program where if you plant shade trees, and they've got a list of, of trees, but they're most all the good trees we normally recommend are on that list, but they will give you $50 credit for each tree that you plant so long as it's in an area that does help with shading your home and all. And uh, that all ends the last day of the month. Uh, so if you got about a week to take advantage of the uh, Green Tree Shade Rebate Program of CPS. So if you've been thinking about that, don't procrastinate because it's going to take you a little while to do the paperwork and get the tree in, get it planted. So uh, get that done sometime soon. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Sherry, Mary, and Robbie, and Sherry is up first. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning, Bob. Uh, Good morning. Happy Easter. And to you as well. Um, I was calling, and I've got aphids on my squash, Uh and I came by Shades of Green and picked up the, the spray. Okay. Put on it. Okay. Uh, how often do I spray those? And this is one of the leaf blight, leaf blighting funguses uh, that you're dealing with. No, they're aphids. Oh, the aphids, the aphids. Oh, golly, I you you should. I, I would spray only as needed, uh, and probably you know you you may get them all the first time around and not even have to spray again at most once a week or so you do want to is your squash big enough to bloom yet uh it's almost like you can that's the thing is you where the buds should come uh the flowers yep. should come uh-huh. they, that's where they're really concentrated okay. i lifted up all the leaves and sprayed underneath the leaves as well as on top well, go ahead maybe and spray a second time, and hopefully that will wipe them out. You don't want to do a lot of spraying once the bees get active because uh, you, you certainly don't want to harm the bees. But one or two sprayings should get them under control. Okay, real... so I should wait till next. 
I should wait till next week to do it again. Well, if you sprayed yesterday, I'd wait about three or four days and spray a second time, and that should totally control them. Okay. Um, I'll write that with my question. Thank you well, so much. Good question it is, Sherry. Thanks so much for the call, and have a wonderful Easter. And Mary is up next. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, you just mentioned that uh, you would wait a couple more weeks to plant okra. I'm down near Corpus Christi. Do you think you it's plant warm enough today. to go ahead and plant? Okay. Yeah, you can plant yeah. yours today. Um, we have summer squash that it's a yellow summer squash, and it started blooming great. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed um, when it was my turn to go over and water that the leaves are turning splotchy yellow. Yeah. There's more yellow than green on them now. Are they, is it like a mosaic or is it just an overall yellowish color? Um, I mean, I'm not for sure. I'd have to go back and look okay. at it again. Well, if, if it's just an overall yellowish color, uh, they've gotten a little too dry at some point. Probably be good to water them and water them with a little Super Thrive or a little bit of Garrett juice. Uh, they're going to okay. produce lots of new leaves. The leaves that are yellowed are, are not going to turn green again, but you should get lots of additional leaves. If they are mottled, if they are looked almost mosaiced, uh, they probably have a virus disease, which although it makes the, the, the leaves and sometimes even the fruit look a little odd, it's not really harmful and it's certainly not dangerous to you. But if I saw that, I would spray them with a little dilute hydrogen peroxide. We're finding that a lot of things that uh, uh, the extension people told us, oh, you just can't do anything to control that virus, that uh, uh, that just hydrogen peroxide. If you get the store-bought stuff, I dilute it about two to one with water and uh, spray that, and that does seem to knock the virus out. You'll go back to more normal colored uh, leaves and, and squash, but uh, it's not a problem to you. It will still have the same nutritional quality, and there's nothing negative about it, except it looks a little weird. Okay. My other question uh, has to do with broccoli. Mm-hmm. We um, have pulled up all except two plants because those two plants, for the first time, I see where the seeds come from. Uh-huh. Um, so how long did we wait to, I mean, do you pick the pods? Do you wait till they dry up? What are you supposed to do? You want the pods to dry but not burst open. Uh, once the pods start to yellow, at that point the seed is probably mature. I would probably go ahead and, and pick the seed pods, let them finish drying, and then it would be a lot easier to get the seed out of them. Now, do you have, are you growing cauliflower or cabbage or any of the other, any of the other uh, coal family plants like that? We do have some cabbage that we haven't picked yet. Okay, has it gone to flower? No. Okay, but it's then your broccoli... Second. It's a second crop of it. Okay. Well, then then your broccoli seed probably will come reasonably true, uh, but you can cross get cross-pollination between cauliflower and broccoli and cabbage and uh, Brussels sprouts, things like that, in which case you just never know what you're going to get out of the seed. But if all you've had okay. is broccoli, it's probably just pollinated by other broccoli flowers and may not be exactly the same size and shape plant you had this year, but it'll almost certainly be a good plant. 
plant. Who knows? You might get something better. So, yeah, let the seed pods start to yellow, then harvest them, let them finish drying, collect your seed, and you'll be all set for next year. Okay. And then we pulled up all those broccoli plants. We had quite a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, we have compost piles, uh-huh. but we don't get a lot of stuff to compost, so it takes a long time. Okay. So, should we put the broccoli in there and just put Absolutely. the leaves in? Do we put Absolutely. the stems too? Throw the whole thing in there. If you can chop it up a little bit, it'll break down all that much faster. But no, I that's that's vegetable material that should always be composted. Uh, it doesn't have any disease issues, and even if it had insects, I wouldn't worry about it. So most definitely throw those into the compost pile. Okay. I can do all that. Thank you one, very much. You have just a one, one last bit of advice on on saving your broccoli seed. Put them in a you know small envelope or something like that. Uh, put that envelope inside a jar that you can seal up and put it in the refrigerator, not in the freezer. But your seed keeps much better under refrigeration. And, of course, our modern refrigerators have very, very low humidity. That's what keeps them frost-free. But that's very, very hard on the seed. So just right. keep a mason jar or two, as you probably already do, that you can store right. your seeds in. And that way you'll have good viability. As I was noticing the other day, I think I have more jars of seed in my refrigerator than I do food. So uh I like to think I have my priori- priorities in order that way. Okay. Do you, is it okay to use the little plastic Ziploc bags, you know, the little tiny ones? Because I um, hunted for paper ones, and I can't find any paper ones anymore. Oh, yeah. Well, I, as, as long as the seed is good and dry, um, okay. it, then it's fine. You just you, you want to have... You don't want it to have much moisture in there uh, once the seed is dry, but you don't want the seeds to continue to dehydrate. So uh, if uh, if you're just looking for something to put the seed in, I probably would punch a few holes in that Ziploc and then put the Ziploc down in a mason jar or something like that. Oh, okay. All right. Great. Thank and you very much. If you're ever down by Travis Wholesale or if you know a good florist, those little envelopes that they put the enclosure cards in that are maybe three inches long and two inches wide, see if you can grab a handful of those because unless you're storing beans or something that are really sizable, you can put a lot of seed in one of those little paper envelopes and they're very, very useful. And I'm sure if you do business with a florist, uh, they'd either charge you a penny a piece or some of them or just outright give them to you. And that's uh, that's what I use a bunch of uh, when I'm collecting small seed like that. I never thought of that. Thank you. Well, you're certainly welcome. You get out and have a good Easter and I know we'll talk again. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, get a break in here. Robbie will be up next, and then Robert. I get to talk to you about our friends at Medina Agriculture. Uh, we got our 26 tons of Medina fertilizer about a week or so ago. Uh, I doubt that very many of you need that much, but uh, it's a good opportunity to tell you agricultural people out there, if you're looking for bulk quality fertilizer. Medina does sell that same good fertilizer in one-ton hampers, and of course it's a lot cheaper that way because they don't have to go to the expense of bagging. And you're going to find that Medina's quality fertilizer is less expensive than those synthetic chemical fertilizers these days, and of course it builds your land. It doesn't destroy it the way that material that so many people use uh, out there on their fields. Just make this the year you're going to give organics a try because they're not only are they much, much more 
good for the soil, much more beneficial to the soil. They're actually less expensive than that ammonium sulfate and those products that you may have been using. Of course, those of us who just have a yard to fertilize or a vegetable garden or a flower bed, we already know how wonderful material Medina's Growing Green is. And for a liquid fertilizer to follow up, you just can't beat the Hasturo products along with their new liquid fish blend. And I've already mentioned two or three times some of the many uses for their Medina Soil Activator or the improved form they call Medina Plus. Great to use for helping break down things in the compost pile, for softening your soil. Medina products are natural, they are top quality, and they work with nature rather than against nature. If you'd like to see all the things Medina makes, go to their website at medinaag.com. When you see them on the store shelves, you can be sure that there's quality inside that bag or bottle when it says Medina Agriculture. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, next in line is going to be Robbie, and then it'll be Robert, and then we moved on to ET and keep on going. Uh, but good morning, Robbie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have I have a question. I have a, a tri-flood zone on part of my property, and I was okay. down there the other day, and I discovered that I have a bunch of the green onions growing down there. Okay. Are those wild? There is a wild Canadian onion. It's not very edible, um, okay. but uh, there there is a uh, one you'll you'll be able to identify it. It kind of makes little bubblets up on the flower spike as well. I'm sure somebody's going to call and tell me that they most certainly are edible. They just <laughs> they they aren't as pleasing to the palate, shall we say, as the ones that come out of my garden. But yes, there is a there is a wild Darn. onion that grows in the hill country. Okay. Uh, second question is, if I wanted to start um, crepe martin, not crepe myrtles. Uh, oh, my mind went blank. Uh, oh, a wooden a, shrub of uh, some sort? The, the the one that has the purple flowers on it that smells so pretty. Oh, the mountain laurel? Yeah, from seed. Okay. What would you suggest? Um, they grow pretty easily from seed. It is a very hard seed, and nature has coated it, you know, with a waterproofing material so that it can go through a fire and can sit there for 10 years and still sprout and grow. So you don't want to wait 10 years. So what you want to do is scratch that seed lightly. You don't have to kind of make a hole in it. You just have to kind of break a little bit of that smooth, shiny surface. You use a fingernail file if you wanted to. You could use, uh, you know, a little triangular file. But you're doing what we call scarifying the seed. I would then soak it for a couple of hours in a garret juice and water mix. And you'll have about 95% germination within a few weeks. Very, very easy to grow from seed. Very difficult to transplant. So, uh, you know, when you're, when you're moving from pot to pot, just take great care not to break up that root ball. But it's almost impossible to dig them in the field and have them survive if they're bigger than just a shovel full of dirt will move. So, uh, great thing to do from seed and very, very easy. Just scarify the seed, soak for a couple hours in garret juice, plant it, plant the seed about an inch deep and just any loamy soil you can just dig some out of your field or you could actually use a potting soil and uh, you should have close to 100 percent success okay thank you that'll that'll keep me busy for the day well you enjoy your easter sunday and call me if you think of anything else robbie oh you too you enjoy your 
Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Uh, next in line is Robert. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Well, Good morning, sir. about um, watering the new St. Augustine side. Uh, yes. Put down this week. So uh, I've been doing it like for 10 minutes. I have a sprinkler system. So like uh-huh. 10 minutes twice a day. That's about right. I do that for another week, and then I cut back to once a day, and then a week or two after that, I cut back to maybe twice a week. But uh, you're you're doing it right. Uh, if your sod was rolled, you should have absolutely no dieback whatsoever. It should just be new instant green lawn. Yeah, it's it's perking up already. You know, going mm-hmm. getting much greener um, already. Uh, in fact, yesterday, the reason I was calling when I sort of walked on it yesterday after this, maybe two hours or three hours after the sprinklers came on, it, it felt kind of soggy, actually. Well, <laughs> you, you you may be overdoing it just a little bit. Actually, five minutes is probably long enough for that sprinkler to run. But um, it's just St. Augustine doesn't mind being pretty wet, and uh, you're just going to start backing it off. What you can do is get down on your hands and knees and just lift up on one of those squares of sod. And once you see roots, once you feel like it's really the roots are starting to get down in the soil, you can start reducing your watering pretty quickly. Yeah, okay. In fact, yesterday after I noticed that, I did come in and reduce it to eight minutes. <laughs> and, Go ahead and cut uh, it have, back to five. I haven't five. walked on it quite yet this morning to see if it yeah. feels soggy. Hey, come on about 6 a.m. Yeah, that's a good time to do it. Yeah, you're off to a good start. Okay. Well, good. I I, I don't want to overdo it with the water and uh, or waste the water, you know. Well, and certainly, certainly that's an admirable uh, way to look at things. But um, just remember that uh, it's, it's not how long you water, but how long you wait between waterings. And at this point, um, just kind of watch the weather. They say it's going to cool off a little bit. You may be able to go back to once a day now. Just go out and feel that soil or, or use your soggy test. And if it's soggy, you don't need to water anymore. It's it's stayed moist enough. But okay. uh, you may, may be able to go to a once a day now. Uh, have you fertilized or did you put down any organic fertilizer before you put your sod down? Uh, actually, both. Um, so I put down before they put the sod on. Then I, I did some over top of it. And so, yes. You're going to have the green shard in the neighborhood very shortly. You're doing it right. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> very okay. good. Very good. Thanks a lot, Rob. You're Bye. sure welcome, Robert. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Let's see here. Uh, E.T. is next, and it'll be Diane and Cheryl. Good morning, E.T. morning, Bob. How are you today? It's a beautiful day and off to a good start. Okay. I think I did a bull's a no-no. I probably what need did some... You do? Uh, well, I've got me some banana peppers, and when I transplanted them, uh, I think I put a handful too much of uh, fertilizer in the hole before I put the plant in. Okay. What kind of fertilizer did you use? It, it was it's called Sustain. It's an 824 fertilizer. Well, I, I don't think it was organic. If it was organic, you'd never have to worry about using too much. But uh, yeah. if it's a synthetic fertilizer, it, it doesn't. People always say it burns. What it does, it just causes a dehydration. Uh, about all you can do is water thoroughly and wait and see how they do. But uh, you can you can certainly overdo it with that stuff. Yeah, I think I put a big handful, and I think put just a little bit too much. So. Well, next time, okay. get yourself some good Medina fertilizer or something, and you won't have to worry yeah, about well, that. Yeah, well, 
It's a stain. It's supposed to be organic, so who knows? I got another question. Uh, I got some container plants, and above them is my hummingbird feeders. Yes, sir. And occasionally they will drip. Will that hurt the plants underneath? No, but what you're going to find, E.T., is that uh, because, you know, your your hummingbird nectar is real sugary, uh, you may get some black mold growing on the sugar part that drips, but that doesn't hurt the plants. It doesn't spread. It just, uh, uh, you may want to rinse it off periodically so it doesn't get too thick, but sure not going to hurt anything. But uh, don't be surprised and don't panic if you see a little black mold growing. It's just growing on the sugar, not on your plants. Okay, cool. And uh, also, you talked to a lady a week or two ago about a passion vine. How would one uh, appropriate one? You know, mine's about the container is probably close to 20 years old. Uh huh. You can propagate it from cuttings, but you want the mature wood. So you're going to wait a little later in the summer, and then you can just take cutting sections of the stem or from the tips of the vines, root them in perlite. They should root pretty easily. A mature passion vine will also make little new shoots that come up from the ground, and you can just dig down four or five inches into the ground and uh, cut there, and in some cases they will have already started to form roots. But uh, uh, passion vine is a wonderful plant. It's a little hard to find uh, in the nurseries right now, and there are a lot of different varieties. My favorite one is the really fragrant one, beautiful purple one called Incense. And then there's a native one, there's a pure white one, there's a red one which doesn't do as well here. But Passion Vine is a wonderful plant to grow and like I say, either propagated from little shoots that come up around the base of your mother plant or later this summer you can take some uh, cuttings from the vines and start some more that way. And uh, share with your friends, it's a great thing to do. Yeah, this one here is uh, this one here is that purplish one, and I got wild ones. I don't know where they ever came from, but they're growing. And one <laughs> last question: I was digging around in the you know the spice cabinet, uh-huh. and I found some some mustard seeds and some thyme and some clove seeds. Will uh-huh. they grow? Probably not. Probably not. Probably way too old, though. Well, they're they're probably too old. They probably have been processed, and um, I I it was it wouldn't hard hurt to try. But seeds on woody herbs are a little tough to begin with. I mean, it's really easy to grow things like basil and um, some of the parsley and and that sort of thing. But the woodier herbs like rosemary and thyme and all, you're better to grow those from a cutting than from seed. The seed is is just not dependable, and uh, I have trouble getting it to sprout and grow well. And uh, and I, I usually things usually pretty grow well, grow pretty well for me. But I think the combination of the age, the you know the way it was processed and all, I think I just go down to the nursery if you want to grow some time and get a nice little plant and plant it. Yeah, well, I, I just threw in a little small pot and just to see what happens. So hey, okay, Bob, you have a really great Easter, and and hopefully it will rain today. Well, all that that would be a great blessing for all of us, E.T., so thanks for the thought, and you have a wonderful Easter as well. Uh, Diane and Cheryl, hang on just a second. Quick break here, and then you will be up next. And if it rains, it'll be raining on my Southwest Metal Roofing System roof at home and here at the nursery, and I won't be worried about the rain. I won't even be worried if it hails. I'll be worried about my garden, but I certainly won't be worried about my roof. 
And let me tell you, by the time 4th of July rolls around, if you've got a metal roof on your home and it's still this dry, you'll be very, very thankful because Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, they actually do a lot to prevent fire damage in a couple of different ways. You're not going to have a problem if that bottle rocket lands on your roof. And if you have the misfortune of having an attic fire, and I certainly hope you never do, think about a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof is it's not going to burn through, and chances are the fireman will have a much better chance of putting it out before it spreads that way. I'll talk about those sorts of things a whole lot, but there are just so many little things about a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof that make it better, uh, not just the fact that it saves you money on your energy bill and saves you money on your insurance and stands up to whatever Mother Nature throws at it. Plus, it's a really good-looking roof, and uh, you have a lot of different choices of styles and colors. Yeah, all those things. You put them together, and I just don't know why anybody would have any other roof on their home because it is truly the last roof you will ever put on your home. And if you're in new construction, building a new home, just tell your builder, I want Southwest Metal Roofing Systems to put the roof on my new home. That's what we did when we were building our groundwater district's office up in Bernie. Let me tell you, it's a beautiful roof, and that roof will last as long as the building is there and they're just not that much more expensive than shingle roofs and you get a great deal of peace of mind as well uh, it's just the only roof i would ever put on a building give them a call and learn more 210-822-6868 as 210-822-6868 for southwest metal roofing systems south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right, we'll get back to phone calls momentarily. And by the way, I do have a couple of open lines. If you can get in a busy signal, dial 210-599-5555. We'll probably get through right now. And we're going to talk to Diane and Cheryl momentarily. But looking down the road to the end of next week, uh, something, especially if you're up in the Bernie area, you might like to take advantage of. The uh, Magic Night African Violet Society is having their big annual show and sale. It's over at the Patrick Heath Public Library, which is a pretty neat uh, building if you've never been in there. Absolutely free admission. Uh, the show goes on Friday from 1 to 4, and, uh, well, actually, uh, then they say the sale is from 9 till 4, so I guess you can get in any time. But uh, Saturday, it's all day two, 9 until 3 in the afternoon. Lots of African violets there on display, lots of good people to talk to, and lots of fun things for sale if you decide that's a hobby you want to get into. But that's coming up next Friday and Saturday, April 22nd and 23rd. Patrick Heath Public Library is uh, about, oh, if you're headed north on Main Street, it's uh, after you've passed most of downtown. It'll be on your right-hand side. Easy to find and a beautiful building and uh, some really neat signage outside, too, that... Uh uh, anyway, it's a great place, and uh, it's going to be a good show. So if you're looking for something fun to do next Friday or Saturday, I'll recommend it highly. All right, to the phone lines, Diane is next. Good morning, Diane. Hi, happy Resurrection Day. And to you as well. Beautiful day out there to uh, celebrate. Yes, sir. Um, my question is, um, I got some knockout roses as a gift, and I'm uh-huh. curious, do you not plant those deep like most other trees or plant, how do i take care of it well plant your roses just like you would plant a tree and knockouts are the, the only thing that really makes them different from most roses is they take more water in my experience and uh, they do bloom 
earlier and more profusely. I, I think they're kind of overused, but they are certainly a beautiful rose. Uh, be certain that they never, ever get bone dry. And when you plant them, it probably they're not necessarily going to be planted too deeply in the pot. So as long as you keep that root ball as high or higher than it was to begin with, you should be just fine. But uh, knockouts in my garden... Uh, I found I had to water them almost three times as often as I water my other roses, so I don't have knockouts anymore because you have to oh. have to be a little tougher to survive where I am. But uh, they're they're a beautiful plant. Uh, be sure you're planting them in full sun. Uh, they will love any of the good uh, fertilizers like Rose Glow or even the Medina products will do just fine on them. And uh, get them out in good sun. They have very few problems and they do bloom profusely. So it's a generous gift. Okay, thank you. Um, and also, I had talked to you. Um, I was trying to identify a rose that my grandfather had planted, and you had told me peace rose, and uh-huh. I went and looked at them, and it's not a peace rose. Okay. This, the rose, I don't think it had a thorn on the bush. If it oh, really? did, there were very few. And um, I'm just curious what else you think it might be. It was a pale yellow to white flower with a little bit of pink in it and it was extremely fragrant and how large was the flower um well i said large and when i said large you told me peace rose so i'm thinking maybe it wasn't that big and i know it 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 grew real tall so i don't know if it was a climbing rose but is is it a bloom that's you know small the size of a half dollar or is it a bloom that's several inches oh no no several inches Okay. I'm going to tell you to go to the website of the Antique Rose Emporium. I think they have a pretty good online catalog. There are probably a thousand different, um, both hybrid roses and old roses, and I would just be guessing. Uh, there, there's so many of them out there, but uh, the, the Antique Rose Emporium is not only a great source of plants, but they they have on online you'll find a tremendous number of pictures and that's probably going to be your your greatest help in trying to identify it uh beyond that if you ever you know want to bring me or send a picture by i know a lot of them but uh they're <laughs> you just wouldn't believe how many how long roses have been popular and uh oh, the yeah. fact that it's uh that it has very few thorns is a little unusual. So yeah, look look through the Antique Rose Emporium's catalog, and um, uh, that would be probably, they, you know, they used to have a location here. Now they're just over in Independence, Texas, uh, over near Round Top. But um, that's going to be, they, there's also a, a really good book that the fellow who founded the Antique Rose Emporium, Mike Shoup, S-H-O-U-P, wrote and i think it's called the queen of the garden or something like that and if you can find a copy of that book it has probably has 60 or 80 different roses illustrated in there and uh that is you know you're likely to find it in there there's some modern white roses that are very pretty but uh, i don't think they'd be what your grandfather would have been planting okay Right, I'd be I'll very much that. interested in hearing what you decide it is because it sounds like a beautiful rose and something that uh, I would encourage you to propagate and share with your friends. Uh, so many oh, of these I wish things, we would have. <laughs> yeah. So you, you don't yeah, have a piece of moved, it anymore? No. When my parents moved, the neighbor cut it down because she said it was just too big. 
and it just broke our heart. <laughs> I guess. Well, I hope you can figure it out, and I hope maybe uh, the Anti Crows Emporium will have another plant of it so that you can plant and continue to enjoy it in your garden. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And let me let me know what you find. Uh, and I will ask next time I'm over at Fanix. Mark and Mike are both very knowledgeable on on roses. But uh, I really think Antique Rose Emporium and their website probably going to be the best way to identify it. Okay. I'll let you know. All right. Thanks, Diane. Goodbye. All right. Uh, let's see here. I believe Cheryl is up next. Good morning, Cheryl. Hi, Bob. This is Cheryl. Um, I have a weed that comes up in my yard with lacy-looking leaves that has tiny white blooms on it that become seeds and are so invasive. Um, and it makes and, it, it kind of sticks to you when uh, when you touch it. No, not so much. Uh, I have the bed straw, but this is a it's a darker green plant, and it comes straight up and. Um, it's really pretty looking uh, when it first comes up, mm-hmm. and then these little white tiny blooms uh, are, you know, seeds that uh, will last uh, through the winter and come right back up. <laughs> are are the do the seeds come off easily, and are they something that would stick to your socks? Yes. Okay. That's it. Um, they, the common name, I can't tell you the botanical name, but if you look up beggar's lice, that beggar's is going lice. Beggar's lice. I hate that plant. Oh my gosh. It just, uh, you know, and, and they do get prolific. They will just make a yes. forest of little growth. And, uh, yes. And yes. Okay, <laughs> Bill, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, uh, I, if you have only a few, you can pull them and throw them in the compost bin. If you have not kept them under control, they will be just a solid mass of growth. Uh, you can kill them. I would do it early before they go to flower and start making little seeds but uh-huh. uh, spray them with that vinegar and orange oil because yes. uh, they uh, they are one of the most invasive weeds you will ever find and uh, Absolutely. I, <laughs> yeah, it's a, they I, I don't like be, I don't like bed straw but boy I'll take bed straw over the beggar's slice oh, yeah. anytime anytime well, I have a huge large uh, yard with uh, deep flower beds mm-hmm. and the Carolina snail seed with the long runners mm-hmm. is not as bad as the beggar's slice. <laughs> well, don't let the snail seed get ahead of you because the beggar's oh, no. slice, at least I, it I dies totally it, every winter, but the uh, yes. snail seed just gets worse right and worse. Back. First yeah. thing. <laughs> well, plan on getting I, out. Pull what you can if you have a grubbing mm-hmm. hoe. Uh, or, or rather the little push-pull hole. That's what I use in areas that I can get in under plants and things. But anywhere that is out in the open, man, that's I probably use more vinegar and orange oil on that plant than I do anything else in the landscape. <laughs> well, when I pull them up, I, I grab some uh, bed straw to uh-huh. wrap around the blooms. <laughs> Of the beggar's <laughs> life to get them into my garbage. <laughs> well, then that's 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 a good thing. And I'll tell you, if you're, I, I have to wear long sleeves because those blasted yes. little seeds will get in the hair on your arms, and then it's painful yes, to get sir. rid of them. And if you if you wear a flannel shirt of any sort, you never get the seeds <laughs> out of that. So I wear those uh, Columbia's oh, sun protection shirts. I guess I get uh-huh. it at Academy or wherever, and yes. at least the beggar's lice uh, rolls right off of that. So. 
Yeah, you're reminding me of things that I need to do in my landscape, but uh, don't let them get ahead of you because uh, they, they are a mess. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much. You are certainly welcome. Thank you for the call this morning. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, it's a beautiful Sunday morning out there, Easter Sunday morning, the holiest of days in the Christian world, and just a great day to be talking about life and gardening and all sorts of fun things, and uh, I believe next in line is Dennis, and then it will be Shirley. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning. Thanks for my call. My pleasure. Thank you for calling. A couple of questions on fruit trees. Um, after the hard freeze last year, was it? Um, mm-hmm. and I thought, I thought I lost all my fruit trees, but, um, they all came back. Um, and I think they all came back on the grafted, on the, on the grafted portion, not on the, not on the root. Very good. Um, but a couple of them, I'm unsure of exactly where the graft point is. Is that a big knot of uh, 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 flesh it's, on the on the root? It usually you will see like a slight offset. It's like uh, something straight coming up out of the ground, and then it just kind of jinxes, you know, left or right. Because what the way they actually do it, they actually use a bud rather than a real big piece of wood, and it goes onto the side of the stem of the rootstock, and then they simply cut the rootstock off above that point. So it's like it comes up and then just makes a little jag to the left or right and continues up. Sometimes there will be a a little gnarly mass of tissue there. Uh, and sometimes the you'll see a distinct difference in size of the trunk of the rootstock and the size of the trunk that's forming on the grafted plant. But uh, you'll definitely notice a little difference in in the direction it's growing, and then it you know starts growing straight up after that. So a little hard to describe, but uh, once you've I think seen you did it, good. You know, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I think you I think you described it good. I think I think I'm good to go there. Very um, good. Did I hear you say one time that the uh, the grafted plant, the desired plant, uh, versus what would be growing from the rootstock, has shorter thorns or longer thorns? Well, in the case of citrus, yes. Um, the case the your your and they use several different rootstocks, but the most common one is called sour orange or trifoliate orange. And man, that thing makes thorns that are two inches long, and it will have a more flattened stem. Uh, some citrus is relatively thornless. There's a thornless Mexican lime. There are a couple of lemons that are virtually thornless. But even the thorn varieties, those little thorns will be between a half an inch long and three quarters of an inch long, and they will certainly puncture you you do want to handle them with care but uh man the the thorns that come out on that rootstock are absolutely vicious well that's that's that scares me then because the roots on uh, the thorns on this one that's growing up are three Uh, inches long 
Yeah, that's probably rootstock. Now, the good news is you can always regraft it. Citrus grafting is not real difficult. You'd almost have to have a picture or a video or something like that, but I'm sure you can find that online. But uh, you could graft from one of your other citrus that uh, did come out above the graft point, or you could go, um, you know, if you have a friend that has citrus or I'm pretty sure that most any nursery would be able to give you a little cutting off of something. Let's say you wanted something really unusual. Uh, there's there's an interesting citrus I was just noticing. We've gotten some called Buddha's Hand, and it is the most odd-looking fruit in the entire world. But anyway, uh, the point is you could regraft uh, even the ones that are coming back from that sour orange root stock. And for that matter, you could even graft more than one variety onto the same plant. Right. Now, uh, the one that the the plant that came back mm-hmm. has grown. It's got to be close to twelve feet tall, straight okay. up, with mm-hmm. two or three two or three uh, you know limbs coming off, very close to the main stalk. Uh, but it's way taller than the original plant. It, yeah, and, and um, should I lop that off? I would decide what you want to do with it first, um, because there are there's more than one way to graft. You can you can graft on a branch that is approximately the size of an existing branch with what we call whip grafting. You can do what's called budding, where basically you make a little slit in the bark of the rootstock, and then you just take a little section of the the outer bark of the uh, plant you want to put on with the bud on it you kind of insert it you make like a little pocket in there and insert this in and then kind of seal it over with grafting wax and uh, sometimes kind of bind it up a little bit or if you want to graft all the way to the base of the rootstock you can cut it off and uh as you're looking down, I'm, I'm guessing that this trunk coming up is probably inch, inch and a half in diameter if it's that tall. It's can, um, it's not more than that. It, it's okay. probably it's, it's not more than an inch. Okay. The the part of uh, again the blackboard would be very useful here. The part of the 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 trunk coming up that actually is living dividing cells is right at the outer edge, just underneath the bark. It's called the cambium, and on a where you want to put a much smaller graft onto a much bigger trunk we do what's called cleft grafting and you basically would cut this off at ground level and then you split kind of split that trunk a little bit and you insert your cutting right on the edge you don't put it in the center because there's nothing for it to bond to so to speak and again don't try this without a picture or a little video to tell you how to do it but you go out so that the cambium layer on your cutting is in contact with the cambium layer on the trunk and uh, it's just one of several ways to graft, but it's it's very easy and very very successful. And uh, so, it's I, I probably would cut the top back. I'd maybe cut it down to three or four feet tall, but I don't think I'd cut it all the way to ground level if you do intend to graft it, because you want to have the option of you know perhaps two or different two or three different ways uh, to decide how you want to graft this, and if you perhaps want to put multiple grafts onto you know one plant. So I, I'm not going to cut it all the way down to ground level, but. I at this point it's no point in letting it get really big so I I'm going to re- I'm going to substantially reduce the size of it I'll just put it that way. I understand. Now, um 
how long how long will it be before this new growth begins to produce? Could produce the first year. Uh, it should you, produce it, this year. It it could. Uh, it certainly could. I'm not saying it will because uh, uh, most varieties other than Mexican limes and kumquats, they bloom in January and February, and then they produce fruit the following summer and fall. Uh, some, like the Mexican limes and the kumquats, they uh, what they're doing is they're just blooming almost continuously and producing fruit almost continuously. But your grafted plant does not have to go through a maturing process, so it is capable. It doesn't. You're not waiting that six or seven years you would planting a seed. Uh, it's capable of blooming and making fruit as soon as the graft is uh, union is well established. So uh, it's not a long way you know, on a grafted plant the way it is on a seed. Okay, last question on that plan, and you've been very patient with me here. Um, uh, we had we had some unexpected wind. Now this mm-hmm. this plant got so tall, I was looking around for a way to stake it up to keep uh-huh. it uh, firm because it was you know it, yeah, it was not strong. Forth. Yeah, and 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 before I could get to it, my wife came in and told me the the orange tree broke off. Mm-hmm. it's on the ground and i went out and looked and this thing is laying flat out on the ground uh-huh it bent bent over right above the graft point uh-huh and and uh I, well this thing's done you know i'm gonna have to look for another plan or, or graft something on there like you said in fact i had thought of that at that moment but uh I didn't get to uh, removing it for a couple of days, just say three or four days, and I went out <laughs> there to do it. And and the thing that's laying on the ground is it hasn't lost a leaf; it's totally yeah. green. Yeah. Well, so I lifted stem, it up. Uh huh. I lifted it up, staked it on three sides, and wrapped it with well, I and I, it's wrapped right now with duct tape. I want to mm-hmm. remove that and and wrap <laughs> something else. What what would I wrap that with? Oh, golly, I, I probably wouldn't wrap it. I would just, you know, use a piece of cloth or something like that to just tie it up. You don't want to use a, a, a string or a piece of wire or something like that because that will cut into and girdle that. But uh, you could use something like an old a piece of cloth the size of a bandana. You could just oh, uh, cool. tie that That's up. Good idea. Now, I, I think that you could probably, you know, cut two-thirds of the top of that off, and that would buy you a little bit of time because the graph, the point that it came out is a very, very weak junction. Most of the time it just splits and breaks off completely. Uh, in this case, you uh, it bought you a little bit of time to decide what you want to do with it. But uh, I, would, I would probably tie it up. I'd probably cut away two-thirds of that top because it's not really going to do you a lot of good, and that would probably keep it from breaking in in the next wind, which is bound to come along before too terribly long but uh it's bought you a little bit of time to decide exactly what you want to do with it good um i'm surprised that it survived given it was split on the bottom but um (laughs) it definitely has a will to live okay and next question and i'll make this quicker the i finally found uh, an apple tree to hopefully allow my uh, granny smith to pollinate uh-huh um is there anything special i should do when i plant it i'm going to plant it today of it's course a, just you know plant it where the root 
flare is right at the surface of the ground. Uh, if if it is really heavily rooted in the pot, you know, you want to take your shears and clip anything that looks like a circling or girdling root. But I doubt that it's been in the pot that long. So basically, dig a square hole. always recommend a square hole rather than a round hole so the roots just don't circle. When they get to a corner, they take off into the surrounding soil. If you want to put a handful of organic fertilizer in the bottom of the hole, you can. But don't do a big job of improving the soil too much or the plant has no reason to put its roots out in the surrounding soil. And then if you want to put a little fertilizer, a little bit of mulch on top, uh, water it good. Uh, do virtually no pruning on an apple tree. Uh, peaches and plums, we probably would cut them back a bit when we plant them, but definitely not an apple. Beyond that, just water, spray them down the trunk periodically, and uh, your apple tree, your other apple tree, be happy to have a mate, and hopefully next year you get apples. Great. Good, good answers. I appreciate you every week. Thanks a lot. You're doing well, great. My pleasure, Dennis. You get out and have a great Easter, and I know we'll talk again. Uh, South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And my great engineer, Chris, was kind enough to uh, check in. Yes, Wild Birds Unlimited is closed today, so I appreciate that, Chris. Thank you. Uh, looks like we're going to talk to uh, Shirley and Marsha. And Robert and Anna, in that order, Shirley is up first. Good morning, Shirley. Oh, good morning. Happy Easter. And to um, you as well. Yes. Head off to church, but I'm glad I caught you. Uh, palm trees, fagos, I look at them like mine and all over, half uh-huh. are green and half brown. So what do I yep. do, ignore them? Okay. Well, if unless they're too ugly, is <laughs> a good way to put it. Unless they're too ugly, ignore them. Uh, you don't want to go cut those fronds all the way off because a sago, which really isn't a palm, it's a cycad, but they're closely related. But uh, it needs as much green tissue as it has. So the ideal thing to do would be to put on some heavy gloves, some eye protection, and get in there and clip off the brown part of the frond and leave the green part behind. In many cases, uh, it's just the tip of the frond is brown, but it will look better if you go through and just kind of give it a haircut and uh, just cut out the brown and leave the green behind. I, like I say, I would not go through and just cut all the green foliage back because uh, um, that that would set the plant back. It needs what green it has, but it, it would look nicer, but there's no mandate to do that. If you want to just ignore it, you can do that. And sometime in the next uh, couple of months, it should put on a lot of good new green foliage that will hide the old ugly stuff. Well, I was wondering if I could do that, just, just tip the brown off and get rid yeah. of some of it. Oh, that that would be the perfect thing to do, but do do wear some good protection because oh, yeah. they have plenty of thorns down there on the base of those fronds, and uh, I don't want to hear about any, any bloodletting going on here. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, and have a great day. You do the same. Thank you for the call. Uh, next up is Marsha. Good morning, Marsha. Hello, Bob. This is Marsha. I'm happy Easter. Well, happy Easter to you as well. My question is about Aspidistra. Uh-huh. I have a line of Aspidistra in my front flower bed, kind of a backdrop to the flower bed. Uh-huh. It's really attractive, and I've enjoyed it so much. But during COVID, I mean, Snowvid, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the leaves really, really got damaged. Uh-huh. 
And so I just took it upon myself to go in there and uh, last spring and remove all the damaged leaves, which it was practically all gone, which I've done before. And they've come back with vengeance and been great. Well, for some reason this year, the leaves came back, but they're smaller, quite a lot smaller. And it was heavily, heavily mulched Mm -hmm. with uh, oak leaves. And so I removed the oak leaves when I was doing all this, and the rhizomes are just like right at the surface of the soil. And they also, the whole growth has migrated farther into the bed that I really (laughs) want it to be. My question is, how do I, can I move them? When should I move them? Can I cut these rhizomes? Do I need to add more soil? That's it. <laughs> okay. In a nutshell, um, yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes, no. You can do pretty much anything you want to. It will not hurt to add, you know, on something like an iris, you would never bury the rhizome. But in the case of Aspidistra, uh, I, it probably would be better to. Now, you don't necessarily need soil. If you want to get, if there were mine, I'd probably go buy some Good Nature's Creation mulch or something like that and add an inch or so of mulch to it. Uh, beyond okay. that, fertilize the same growing green fertilizer or whatever you're using. The Aspidistra will love it just as your grass does. And the newer, smaller leaves are partly just because uh, it lost a lot of its green absorbing, you know, energy absorbing capacity with not just last winter, but this past winter as well. And right. it's it's early. The soil is still cold. By midsummer, I think you're going to see it putting on leaves that are fully as big or bigger than you were used to in the past. It just... Uh, uh, it's just it's it's in recovery at this point. It's still got a ways to go, and fertilizer, water. Uh, when normally what I would have done, in fact, what we did with ours after the big snow is just cut everything off at ground level and let it put well, that's on. That's what I did. Yeah, and well, and let it put on, and the new growth that came out at that point is somewhat reduced in size. But by summer, right. it's going to be, especially if you fertilize it, it's going to be back to the size you were used to. Watch it carefully for scale insect, uh, because they, you, sometimes they will get a little hard, brownish-black scale, very, very small, size of a pinhead, sometimes shows up when they get stressed, and you can control that with spinosad soap or neem or something like that. But it, it's just something to keep an eye out for. But they don't call it cast iron plant for nothing. It's going to be back. If you want yeah. to, if you want to dig some rhizomes and move them to the front, you can. I would do it as soon as possible if you plan to do okay. that. But be aware that the new growth that comes out on those is going to be even smaller than it was on the main plant. So if there's any way, to just, you know, and, and when it puts on its new growth, it's going to put it on to the side, to the back, and to the front. And I might even think about if I, if where it's encroaching backwards into the bed, I might just take some of those rhizomes and put them in pots and grow some new plants to replant after they're well rooted. But there's no reason that your aspidistra shouldn't be growing as much to the front as it is to the back. And I would try to encourage it to do that because if it's coming off the established rhizomes, the leaves are going to be a lot bigger to start with and they're going to continue to get bigger and bigger rather than going through a year of getting reestablished, which which is what would happen if you tried to transplant a part of it. Okay, well, it's already started putting up little 
you know, leaves. Mm-hmm. Yep. So now is the time to move it. It's migrating into the flower bed. I want to move it back farther, okay. closer to the flower bed, yep. uh, the foundation, I mean. Yep, you, you, could, so. you can do that, and now you want to do it before it gets hot. But expect okay. that, and, and rather than dig out, you know, your commercial growers would cut it down to just little individual rhizomes with one or two leaves on there. If you're going to do this, try to take out a bigger clump, probably a clump of several rhizomes together. It'll be a lot easier okay. to transplant it. It'll come back a whole lot faster. And one other thing that I would tell you to do just out of interest when you're doing this, watch for flowers. Very few people have ever seen their aspidistra flower, and it has a little flower that's about the size of a nickel that is a dark, dark maroon red color and actually very interesting, but it never comes up above the surface of the mulch or the surface of the soil. So since you've got all this exposed, you may have the privilege of actually seeing what an aspidistra flower looks like. Well, actually, I have. I really take care of that. I mm-hmm. water them and fertilize them. They've been so pretty for, I mean, attractive for so many years. I did yep. see one of those one time, only one. <laughs> very good. Well, you may see more this year, and it will get back to where it was. It's uh, uh, Aspidistra all around was set back by the severe cold. One other thing, if you decide that there are other places that you want to have it, but you think that your Aspidistra gets a little bit big for that spot, there is a new variety of Aspidistra. It's been out about a year now called Tiny Tank. T-A-N-K, and it has uh-huh. all the benefits, all the toughness of the big one, but only gets about 8 or 10 inches tall, and it just, oh, it's, yeah. it just a great new uh, tool in our uh, in our you know plant toolbox. There's also, my business partner has a beautiful stand of a variegated aspidistra, which is pretty much harder to find, but if you've ever wanted something as tough as aspidistra, but didn't want, you know, something two, two and a half feet tall, check out Tiny Tank. It's beautiful, and it's just like a, it's just a dwarf aspidistra well do you have that at shades of green we did yesterday i have to tell you things uh change very quickly this time of year i think there are still some back there but i came in and sat down to do some quarterly tax work instead of running back to the back of the nursery when i came in this morning but uh, i think we have uh, more of it and i know we will get more and when you come by you'll get to see our, our new arbor structure which is something fun to look at no, I was there last week, and I saw okay. the, the smaller aspidistra, but I didn't okay. see the variegated one, and yeah, I would no, love we don't, that. We don't have a, yeah, we don't have the variegated one right now. I, I buy it okay. whenever I can find it, so uh, keep checking back with me on that one. But if you're looking for Tiny Tank, we, we are getting that one regularly now. Okay, I really thank you for all your information, because it really is attractive in the front of my house, <laughs> and I'm... I've been so worried about it. Well, you find something else to worry about. There are plenty of other things in today's world. Your expedition is going to be fine, Marsha. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Robert, Anna, Jerry and Jeannie in that order. Robert is up first. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bob. I, I can't exactly say that Happy Easter goes along with quarterly tax information. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, it's uh, 
Um, it, it, what can I say? It's it's one of yeah. those things that you observe. You observe one of them in a happy fashion, and one other in a richer teeth fashion. So, uh, <laughs> but when it comes yes, toward uh, toward the end of the quarter, it's just something you have to do. Yeah, this is true. Well, I, I hope the rest of your day is more joyful. Well, it definitely so, will be. Good. A couple, a couple unrelated questions to one another. First, I heard you uh, with the Sago a little bit ago. I had two relatively well-established potted Sagos that the freeze hit. I took about six rows of fronds off and left the top three that were probably 30 40% green still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I have new fronds coming out. My question Good. is... And I don't care about cosmetics that much. I'm more concerned about the, 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 the plant itself living longer. Once the full fronds have opened, can I remove all the rest of them sure. that are brown fact, and green, or is it yeah. best to leave them on? It makes no difference. You know, the more green okay. you have, the stronger the plant is. But it's if it's putting on a good, healthy new set of fronds, it's got everything it needs. And uh, it, you you can do either one. If you're sure that, it's, that it is putting on foliage rather than getting ready to bloom, you can go ahead and cut the damaged fronds off right now because, as you know, I'm sure, that new growth is real soft and tender and breaks real easily. So it's either cut the old off before the new gets very far along or wait until it's come out and hardened off and then go back and cut the old off if you want and that's that's a decision that's strictly up to you okay well i'll let them i'll let them play out i've got two of them that are identical in size mm-hmm. and everything i'll maybe i'll play around and do one with one and one with the other that's, learn something that's fine it's and and as you probably will see this spring we certainly saw last spring many times when plants are stressed they go into reproductive mode and in the case of uh cycads like your sagos when they do that they skip a whole year of making new fronds the male and female plants are separate and uh, it, it was real hard on them after the snowmageddon because uh, lots of plants lost all their foliage and then decided on a reproductive year, so they had very little new growth came out. This year, I think it's going to be a lot better. I'm not seeing nearly as many of them go into a reproductive phase. But watch watch your new fronds coming out long enough to be sure that it's not the beginning of uh, – you know the the reproduction on them, and if you're once you're certain that uh, that they are going to be just foliage that's coming out, then just make your decision. And like I say, you can try one one way and one the other. They're tough plants; they've been around since the age of the dinosaurs, so uh, long term they're going to be just fine. Okay, I had <clears throat> snowmageddon. I had protected this this year in the one of the freezes i do i didn't protect them at all this year i figured they uh-huh. and none of them were quote going to get as cold enough <laughs> to damage them but right. they survived and these are fronds coming out so i mean this okay. is for, they didn't have damage last february that it was just this yeah. moderate yep. freeze this year next thing is onions um oddly about a week ago i pulled one creole onion that had bolted the rest of them uh-huh. i have three different sets of onions they're all you know they're all about size-wise ready to come out. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, some of the green is starting to bend. Uh-huh. Do I, if they're not, I guess two questions. First is a general question. Will they always bolt if you leave them in when it gets warmer? No. 
No, in fact, okay. uh, many many times if you left them in, they wouldn't bolt until next year. And they can sit there okay. if we don't have lots and lots of rain, which we certainly haven't had. I tend to, you know, leave them in the ground until the tops are totally browned out because as long as they've got green tops on them, they'll continue to get a little bit bigger. The ones that do bolt, I do harvest immediately and uh, uh, use. But, uh, no, they uh, ultimately they will bolt and flower. I mean, all plants are going to flower and go to seed ultimately, but uh, many of them will sit there all summer long and uh, wait until next year to, you know, reproduce and make seed. Okay, well, very good. Yeah, these are, because the one bolted early, I thought, well, that, you know, what a pain. That's always irritating. Yeah. Um, but, like I say, none of the rest have, and they're, you know, I mean, they're they're all healthy. They're, they're large grocery store size for the most sure. part, but that doesn't mean they can't get bigger. Well, yeah, and I, uh, I would bed, say so. tip, typically in my garden, probably 10% of them bolt, and uh, I'm, okay. I'm okay with that. I'm going to harvest them and enjoy them or share them with Dr. Kirby or my business partner and then the other 90% I'm going to keep a a fair percentage of them for me and uh, not even mention that but you know share with friends because boy the homegrown onions it's not quite as (laughs) yes sir do um real quick um not taking too much time I heard and just yes or no don't have to explain anything um if I have a starting to get established corn can I uh-huh. use those to support pole beans? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. That's the old, I, I, you know, none of us were around to see it, but uh, supposedly that's what our our forefathers did is just used it. And, of course, they tell lots of stories, which probably have a grain of truth to them, that planting the beans helps the corn because it is true that beans are legumes and they do form little nodules on the roots that, uh, you know, take atmospheric nitrogen and convert it into fertilizer. So uh, it, it would certainly help everything. It's not going to make just a miraculous amount of difference, but uh, I would put the majority of my effort into protecting my corn from the raccoons because I think they invented the Internet long before Al Gore did. And uh, I would tell you, when that corn approaches uh, being ripe, they send out a message, and every raccoon in the county is going to be over and try to steal your corn. So uh, <laughs> do whatever it takes to protect it because yeah, I've seen a big cornfield totally, totally decimated overnight, and I have taken taking great pleasure in hearing them come in contact with my electric fence. Yes, sir, I, I understand wholeheartedly. And, gee, just think about what a great world we'd be in if Al Gore was never part of it. But <laughs> I digress. <laughs> we're um, not going hey, down that road. This is yeah, Easter. Not, this is a happy day. Or, uh, or, or the, no, nor the right audience. Real quick, right. ask, uh, ask Dr. Kirby. I'll be listening. See if he found anything out about the... Uh, the pigmentation issue with my eggs. I've got one chicken laying white eggs that used to lay brown eggs. I'd called a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, I remember the call. Yeah, yeah. Dan's going to okay. be in, be in about eleven. So uh, I'm putting a note on the, on the bottom of my little scribble sheet here to ask right, him about sir. just that. I'll do it, Robert. All right. Have a great day, Bob. Happy you Easter. Do the same, sir. Happy Easter to you. Okay, let's take one more call, and that would be Anna. Good morning, Anna. Hey, Bob. How are you? From Ohio, doing well. Uh, well. Yeah, back at you. Yeah, I got a chuckle out of the the raccoons and the corn because I think the same signal goes out when you put fish emulsion in your pot plants on the porch. (laughs) Uh, There's stories there as well, but I'll save them for another time. You're exactly right. Um, 
Bob, we had our well tested uh, about a month ago and got back some results. And okay. we have arsenic that's above the harmful level of 10. We've got mm. 29, and we've got manganese that's above the recommended value, but not at the harmful point. Okay. And I use the well water for guard, you know, watering the vegetable garden, although it doesn't get 100% uh, water from the well. It gets rain, and it's pretty moist sure. up here anyway. Sure. So do, what are my concerns on using that well water with arsenic on the vegetable? Well, I... Uh... There is arsenic is everywhere, and yeah. you have we have in San Antonio. You had when you lived here a background level of arsenic. Now, I doubt that it is. I, I would I would not be concerned at all uh, as far as things that are produced above ground. I would not worry about peppers and tomatoes and such as that. I might be a little concerned about root vegetables. You know, it's a real good question, and I'm writing myself uh, a note to talk to Howard Garrett about that because I I don't know that uh, it's likely to be absorbed. I can't think of any metabolic process in a plant that makes use of arsenic, but uh, my concern would be radishes and potatoes and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I, maybe somebody smarter than me will call and give us uh, what knowledge they have. But I will. Uh, I'll make a note to talk to Howard about that next week because uh, uh, it's an excellent question. Okay, because we're trying to find you know somebody that can give us some information on the well water that comes into the house. But mm-hmm. uh, apparently that's a limited resource, and you have to be certified and credentialed and all sorts of things. But I would think living out here in the country, we're not the only one, but we may be the only one that had our well tested. Well, it's, it's, it is a very good question. And uh, do, do you know if your aquifer fluctuates up and down like our aquifers? I, of course, know a lot about hill country aquifers with my work on the water district. But do you know if your aquifers go up and down a great deal? Because we find that, you know, in, in a drought, when the level in the aquifer drops, uh, oxidation occurs with a lot of the rocks that are suddenly dry that are usually immersed in water. And we get some nasty things uh, turning into forms that, you know, can suddenly appear in our water when the uh, water table comes back up again. Mm-hmm. So this could be a temporary situation or it could be something you're going to have to deal with permanently. But uh, arsenic something you certainly don't want to consume any large amount of. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if the aquifer is uh, fluctuating or not, but it'd be a good question for me to ask too. If, if and they and know see anything. if you have a groundwater district. Again, I know absolutely nothing about water law in Ohio, but um, Google and see you know by your by your county if you have a groundwater district, and those folks deal with it on you know, an ongoing basis and can give you an honest, unbiased result. I, uh, you can always, you know, talk to a well driller or talk to uh, 
you know, somebody who has water softeners and things like that about ways to remove it from the water. But I would always start out with somebody that doesn't have any financial stake in the gain and in the game. Yeah. And if you if you have a groundwater district there, they would be the place I would turn for information first of all. Okay. I will ask our well guy uh, Heath is one of the smartest people I know. Uh, we don't have a, yet the northern part of our area. We sometimes have radon in the water because we have so much granite up there, and uh, and it very definitely varies depending on how hard the aquifer's pumped. But uh, let me let me I'll see him in a meeting Tuesday night, and uh, I'll see what I can find out for you. Oh, awesome! Okay, I got one other thing. Um, we're going to build a greenhouse, and I know you say to uh, when you get the size you want, you build one bigger than you think. Double and the size, and you outgrow it within two years anyway. Yeah. It'll probably be a rectangle. Um, as far as orientation, uh, what would you figure the, the long side should be facing up here? Uh, it, are, are you going to use exhaust fans to cool it? How are you going to cool it? It'll probably be with uh, window ventilation and maybe some, some fans also okay. during the summer, but we want to have something that's going to have a, a window opening as well yeah. on the bottom and on the top. I would I would orient it on a north south axis. That's because your as your sun passes over, it will cast a moving shadow, mm-hmm. and uh, you can you know you probably have to do some shading. But beyond that, I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of difference. Obviously, the north side is going to be the cooler side of the greenhouse, so I would probably choose to have my main door opening toward the toward the south and have it on a north south axis. Okay. Okay, so the, that would be the the long end. If it's say eight, for example, eight by sixteen, the sixteen foot side should be facing south. Um, well, are you going to access it? Is it going to be a standard peaked roof? Are you going to be going Probably, in the? Yeah, and okay. we're thinking about using that. Um, uh, I don't know what you call it. That uh, plastic material that you have in your in your area yeah. there that has the little uh, straw type of structures in the center yeah, yeah it's between. it's called bywall it's a bywall material look for the That's brand it. called lexan l-e-x-a-n if you can find it it's, it'll be the best one on the market for you okay yeah, that's what we're planning to use for the sides and the roof, other yeah, than for it's, the ventilation. It's, there, there are, there's, Polygal is a mid-range, but if you want the one that's going to last longest and is made specifically for greenhouses, look for Lexan, L-E-X-A-N. That's okay. what we put on our new, uh, newest greenhouses we've built here. Okay, sounds good. Well, it's good and to hear from you, Anna. You have a wonderful weekend, and I'll, we'll both see what we can learn about, uh, about arsenic and problems in the water. Okay, well, we're not dead yet, so so far I guess we're okay. <laughs> we'll do our best to stay that way. All righty. We'll talk to you later. Okay, thanks. Bye. Well, Chris, let's get a break out of the way here, and we'll be right back and talk to Jerry and Jeannie. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Man, this day is flying by. Beautiful Easter Sunday out there. We're going to talk to Jerry and Jeannie and Jean and TJ. Jerry is up first. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Bob. Happy Good Easter. Good morning. Happy Easter I'm to you, to sir. Thank you, sir. I'm uh, trying to please my wife, and she wants a loquat tree. Okay. Uh I'm I'm assuming that they are more like a fruit tree, like an like an orange or a citrus tree. I mean, 
No, they're and they're more like a they're more like a big shrub. They're more like a big viburnum or fotinia or something like that. Uh, now kumquat is uh, something totally different. That's a citrus tree, but loquat okay. is called Japanese plum, and it's just a, a big woody shrub that will grow 15 or 20 feet tall if you let it. Can it be grown as a as a bush, like a loquat or, oh, yeah. or an orange? Okay, so it can be. You mean, uh, how about you mean it, it is loquat now that you're interested in, not kumquat, right? Right, loquat, yes, sir. Yes, yeah. sir. Yeah. yeah, no, it is. It grows as a big as a big bush. Like I say, it'll be oh eight, probably six eight feet across and ten twelve feet tall as a at maturity. If you want to prune it back to keep it smaller, you can. But they're easy plants to grow. They're they're usually grown as landscape plants. They they bloom in the fall, and then if we have a mild winter, you get lots of fruit in the spring. If we have a really cold winter, most of the fruit freezes, and you don't have much that. Year year but uh uh probably three out of five years here in san antonio you will get quite a bit of fruit unfortunately i don't know how to tell uh some of the some of the plants will they all make fruit about the same size mostly old golf ball size fruit sometimes it'll be mostly seed with just a little bit of flesh and some of them have a, a lot more flesh and there's a lot more edible to the fruit but without without actually getting one while it has fruit on it i honestly don't know how you can determine which one you're getting i don't know of anyone who sells them as a fruit producer like say they sell them as a a big screening shrub and then just the the fruit is a benefit if you like it and a nuisance if you don't okay uh what what kind of temperature can it be hardy down to it's hardy down into the teens uh, they suffered a lot of damage uh, two years ago when it got down in the single digits, especially in the hill country. But uh, it seems to happen about once every 30 years. I, if it's properly watered, I would not be concerned down to 16 or 18 degrees at least. Okay, I was just concerned in case I needed to keep it near closer to my citrus, which I did cover you know, in yeah. previous years. Well, the the loquat's going to get awfully big to cover. I would treat it like uh, we do our Hong Kong orchid tree and things like that. If we're going to have just really, really, really cold temperatures, I would wrap the lower portion of the plant because that way if the top freezes, it'll still come out from the base. Yes, sir. But uh, that's, that's not likely to happen. I've seen it happen twice in the last 50 years. Okay, so, so more than not, give it more room and just not yeah. too concerned about frost okay. right and if you're uh, looking for fruit give it plenty of sun it will grow in a shadier area but the more sun it gets the more fruit it will produce yes sir yes sir uh speaking of citrus a grapefruit can it be grown more like a bush also oh yeah yeah any citrus okay. can be grown as a bush but grapefruit are uh one of the least hardy of the citrus so uh, and I don't know if you will find it, but if I were going to try to grow a citrus, I would see if I can find one that was grafted onto this rootstock, which is called uh, Flying Dragon. Uh, it's a dwarfing rootstock that will keep the size down because grapefruit makes a big tree, and it's really hard to protect. But uh, uh, the Flying Dragon is about like the M9 rootstock on the apples. It lets the tree form full-size fruit, but it makes it keeps it as a more compact tree. So, again, I don't know 
that you will find it, but you might, uh, all citrus sold in Texas has to be grown in Texas, so you can't go searching countrywide for it, but uh, most of the citrus grown in Texas is from a uh, nursery over in the Houston area, and uh, I'll, I'll make an inquiry and see if they ever graft any of that on Flying Dragon, otherwise you're just going to have to prune it occasionally to keep it down to a size you can protect it. Okay, I picked this one up at Fanix, so I'm not sure what the rootstock was. But yeah, I'd say it it's probably not thing. Flying Dragon. It's probably okay. Carrizo or, or uh, one of the others. But uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, you can certainly make it a bush, and you'll get more fruit that way, and it'll be easier to protect in the rare time. So we have to do that. All right. So one last question. Yeah. You're, uh, every so often you talk about a thing called coco raw i believe it's called or it's coco raw c-o-c-o-r-a-h-s stands for communities collaborative rain hail and snow network but it's c-o-c-o-r-a-h-s dot org uh go to that website and play around with it there's a lot of information on there yes sir let it rain (laughs) amen to that one (laughs) yes sir happy easter again happy easter to you Look forward to talking again. And uh, let's move on and talk to Jeannie. Good morning, Jeannie. Good morning. Happy Easter to you. Thank you, and to you as well. Bob, we have a avocado tree in a pot. came from a tree that we planted in 2009 and made delicious avocados. It was called Day, Variety Day. Okay. And then the big freeze got it. But the one I have in the pot, my question is, do you know what kind of root system avocado trees have? It's is a it fibrous, or does it go straight down? Because I don't really have a place to plant it, except maybe like maybe four feet from the house. It's not going to cause any damage to your your home's on a slab. Yes. Okay. It's you never have to worry about it damaging your foundation. Um, it uh, it it has a woody root stock, very much like say a crepe myrtle or a viburnum or anything like that. But there's nothing under that slab that the roots want. You could plant it right up against a slab, and 99% of the roots will grow out into the yard. So, I you you do want to have it wherever it will get adequate sunlight but yeah. i would have no concerns about your foundation whatsoever okay that was my concern that's all i need thank you so much <laughs> yeah that's a pretty easy one get out and enjoy this beautiful day <laughs> thanks too. Judy. Bye. goodbye all right chris let's get our last break of the show out of the way so we'll see how much time we have to talk to gene and tj and we'll go from there south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right, back to gardening and kind of wrapping up the garden show. Uh, Dr. Kirby will be in very shortly, and we'll be doing the pet show today live as uh, as we have done in the past. So it's not a recorded show. It will be live. You can be thinking about your questions for the good veterinarian uh, while we finish up talking about gardening. And it is Gene's turn. Good morning, Gene. Morning, Bob. Good morning, hey. sir. My Lord, I've been listening to you for 25 years, man. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's been fun, and I've been doing it for, for substantially longer than that, but it's still <laughs> still fun, or I wouldn't be getting up so early in the morning. I heard that. Hey, I got uh, two little cuttings. I took off a, a uh, oleander and uh, put them in that perlite. Mm-hmm. I, think it was, I think it was back in December. Okay. It's a long time back. And, uh, yeah. you know, they took a long time and finally started uh, coming up, and they got new leaves on them and stuff. And they kind of just seem to be sitting there now. And I took them, I had them on a heat pad. Mm-hmm. I took them outside now, and uh, 
I can't stand to lose this plant because it's all that I got left of a plant I grew up with back in the 1950s. Yeah. And uh, do I just pull them out of that perlite or, or that bare root them or well, what can happen? You, you, at some point, you will want to transfer them to soil, and you want to be sure that they have some good roots established when you do that. So um, there, uh, there's no nutrient whatsoever in perlite. So if you want to leave it in a little longer, which certainly won't hurt anything, if you want to get the absolute maximum roots established before you take them out and put them into soil, you can go ahead and instead of just putting water on your perlite, you can mix up a little has to grow, uh, something like that, and fertilize them. I mean, it would be like growing things hydroponically. They never have to come out of the perlite. But long term, I'm sure you want to grow them up to, you know, something that you could potentially put back out in the yard or wherever else. But if you want to leave them in the perlite a little bit longer to be sure that they're well rooted, uh, just mix up your, uh, has to grow at the normal dilution, which is going to be about an ounce per gallon. And, uh, just put that on in lieu of the water that you would normally be using to keep the perlite moist. Okay. I think I'll do that. And then when I, when I do take them out, I mean, all the perlite's going to fall off. Uh, that's not a problem, right? Well, uh, not all the perlite's going to fall off. Probably 85% of it will fall off, and 15% will remain attached to the roots. And But you don't try to shake it off or anything else. You know, perlite is mixed into a lot of potting soils just to keep the soil a little bit lighter, more open, keep a little bit more oxygen in the soil. So anything that sticks to the roots, just leave it alone. Just pot it into a good potting soil and grow them up to whatever point you're comfortable planting them out. And when they get up to a decent size this summer, take some more cuttings and um, just, you know, you don't want to be down to just two plants that some Yahoo could drive off the road and drive over with his uh, big pickup or something like that. So I, I, if, if I had a plant that was really had sentimental value to me like that, I'd be propagating enough of it that I could give a piece of it to every friend I had so that I would always have a place to go back and get some more if something happened to mine. That's a good plan. Bob, I appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. You are more than welcome. Uh, keep listening, and I hope we'll both be uh, we'll both be here for years to come doing the same thing, Gene. <laughs> you bet I will. Take care. <laughs> All right, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, next up is TJ. Good morning, TJ. Good morning, sir. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you as well. I uh, have a couple of questions for you, and my very last one will be for Dr. Kirby. Uh, And um, I have a peach that I was driving around with my tractor and I broke a limb that is, Mm -hmm. it was hanging to the nub where it attaches to another limb. So what I did is, is I, I didn't want to lose it. It was a a pretty considerate size limb. I wrapped it with a plastic and I put some of that rooting powder and some Mm -hmm. dirt and blah, blah. What are my chances? You think it'll... And when I when I water the tree, I also make it a point to water the the area where the the limb is attached to the other limb. Well, the odds are not real good. I mean, if uh, are the leaves? Do the leaves still look good on the broken limb? Or are they still green and supple? No, not at all. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's. Uh, uh, in this case, I'm I'm not going to hold out a whole lot of hope for it. Uh, it's okay. hard. You know, sometimes you can create what's called an air layer on a woody tree, 
but to break something off and then try to reroot it on a peach tree uh it it would be almost impossible on a big limb uh you might have been able to take a small section off the tip of the limb and perhaps get that to root but even with the peach tree that would that would be unlikely but uh i guess uh, you know never say never but the chances of that limb surviving are are somewhere between slim and none okay now i I, one more one more tree that 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 i did stuff to i was weighing down my pear tree Mm -hmm. and i weighed it down a little too much and it broke (laughs) So my husband went and took it and put it in water, hoping that it's going to root. So probably the same thing, right? Uh, Unfortunately, probably the same. Uh, Woody trees, in fact, even many woody shrubs, do not root well. Uh, Trees are just almost exclusively grafted, grafted onto a rootstock grown from a seed or uh, some trees can be grown as a rooted cutting, but water is not really a real good rooting medium because the roots that form in water do not do well when you transfer it over to soil. If uh, and and you have to, if you're going to have a cutting, you, it has to be a very small cutting because the more leaves you have left on a cutting, the more moisture it loses, the faster it dries out, and the less chance it has of being able to form roots before it dies of dehydration. So, um, you could try putting a cutting like that into a container of perlite, the white volcanic material. Keep mm-hmm. it out of the sunlight. Keep it constantly moist. And uh, doing this in the fall, we root woody shrubs this way. We root hollies. We root loquats. We root viperniums and things like that. But most true trees do not lend themselves to propagating. Now, I'm not going to say it's impossible. And if it's uh, broken loose, you can always give it a try. But don't ever try to do it with something more than about five or six inches long. If you had a limb that broke off, I would cut off the the outermost portion the distal portion of the limb say the last five or six inches and try to root that but don't feel like you're a failure if you don't root it because it doesn't usually work okay uh one more tree it's like everything's happening to my trees this is a plum tree and Uh it's fairly new it's above this is the second year Mm -hmm. only two limbs out of this tree came back i'm looking at it right now only two limbs out of it came back and everything else is like me it's dead. So do I just leave it and and trim whatever is dead? Yeah, I would. The portion of it that appears, well, let's just say the portion of it that does not have leaves, go through limb by limb and cut those limbs back by about one-third because sometimes a limb will be alive, but somehow it just doesn't have the strength to leaf out. When you reduce that limb, uh, you know, cutting some off the tip, sometimes it forces it to put on foliage. And that's what I do on the portion of the plum that doesn't have any leaves, and then give it till the 4th of July. If it hadn't come out by the 4th of July, those limbs are dead, and you might as well take them off. But a young plum like that, I, it would be it would be unusual to lose that much of it. You know, 12, 15-year-old plum, yeah, they start getting to the point that they just don't, 
come out real well. They're they're not a real long live tree. But a young tree doing that, I'm not going to give up on those limbs coming out yet. If they're dry and brittle, yeah, they're dead. But at this point, I would go through and just snip off the outer third of each limb and watch it. Many times that will force it to start putting out leaves down closer to the trunk. Awesome. Excellent. All right. And my question for Dr. Kirby, when, when he comes around, um, I had leftover syrup from bread pudding for Easter. Uh-huh. And um, I, I, it's got cinnamon and clove in it. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking of using it for the, for the hummingbirds. I'm going to... No. No, they, they nope. won't like that. They won't like that. They they really don't want anything except uh, a sugary substance, either honey or sugar. Uh, I don't think it would probably hurt them, but I don't think it would be attractive to them either. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to have to sacrifice myself. <laughs> Maybe you can find a way to make a drink out of it or something like that. But <laughs> TJ, you get out and have a good Easter. I appreciate the call. 